Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. I'm the editor of Squiggly Magazine. I'm joined as ever by Ben. Hello, Ben. Hello, everyone. This is Ben Mitchell. Isn't it a lovely day today? This is a special Squiggly Podcast. Ben has been travelling around the Encounters Festival in Bristol and he's going to tell us all about it. I certainly am. Yes, we uh, we did the Annecy special um, uh, a couple of months ago, I guess now, and it seemed to be kind of a, a, I dare say, a bit of a hit with the listening audience. I think it's you know, a big component of uh, uh, animation in general is the festival circuit. And, uh, well, the great thing about Encounters, it's it's one of the big UK festivals, and it's about a five-minute walk away from my apartment. So, uh, you know, it all just seemed to fall into place. Yeah, so I had to travel to France, uh, yeah. learn a different language, <laughs> you know, travel abroad, you know, the baggage, the plane, and everything else. Get beaten with croissants and baguettes. It, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Ben got to leave his flat and, and walk down the road. That's about as big an adventure for me, you know, equivalent-wise. Yeah. I don't like to leave the apartment usually. Well, it's good to get out. So today on the podcast, uh, it will be very Encounter-centric. We're going to be talking to a bunch of people involved with the festival, talk about some of the films involved, uh, the winners, the events, uh, all the all the merriment and excitement. It's going to be like being there, but yeah. only not. So who have been talking to, Ben? Who did you meet at the festival? Lots of lovely people. We have a chat coming up with Kieran Argo, who is in charge of the animation part of the whole festival. David Sproxton, the chair of the Encounters board, and of course the co-founder of Ardman, uh, our little local animation studio. Also, we talked to one of this year's main guests, Paul Bush. We talked to Jane Davies and Paul Hill of A Productions, who do the Encounters trailers and branding, which is a big part of the convivial festival atmosphere. Uh, lots and lots of exciting content to come, and uh, of course, you know, nattering and uh, editorializing in between. So then, Ben, pretend I'm an idiot just for a second, and I don't know anything about the Encounters Festival. Tell me what the Encounters Festival is. Well, it's a uh, it's a festival. It's it's in Bristol. Been going for quite a long time now. It's one of the big deals of the British independent filmmaking scene and the not-so-independent filmmaking scene. It's a huge platform for young up-and-comers, people who can be up for various awards that will give them a bit of visibility and maybe some cash in their pockets as well at the end of the day. Uh, opportunities, you know, internships, that kind of thing. And really, it's just nice to have your film in a festival, but if it's if it's close to home, that's, uh, that's rather nice too. This is the uh, 18th edition of Encounters. Now it's had various forms over the years. For a while it was just a, you know, an indie film festival and then for several years they would have an associated animation festival that would run at a different time of the year. That ended up getting it merged with the main Encounters festival so it became a sort of all-encompassing, you know, film and animation type shindig. That was the state of it when I first moved here uh, about six years ago now, which is kind of terrifying. I've been here six years. You've still got boxes that you need to unpack. Yeah, and it was an interesting type of festival. I mean, quite a few festivals out there do combine live action with animation. It's a hard one to pull off, I think. And I, I imagine it would be especially tricky, you know, from a festival programmer's perspective, because the thing about a, a, you know, a short film screening program, they're usually an hour to two hours long. You want to try and retain your audience interest. I think it's hard enough to do that by, you know, putting together enough films in one medium. Um, so if you have a sort of mixed medium and you're playing to sort of a crowd that maybe some people just don't like animation or they find documentaries ponderous or they find the animation to be the highlight or whatever, then they have to sit through, you know, films that aren't their thing. 
just having it, you know, be a separate thing, just, I don't know, just sort of makes it easier to kind of plan your week. Mm. And uh, uh, it increases the odds that you get the sort of bang for your buck of, of, you know, you pay, you know, however much money for a screening ticket you want to be satisfied for an yeah. hour or two hours or whatever. So I think since they split it up again, it's improved. And they, I think they split it up three years ago. And instead of having it run at different times of the year, they now have it, you know, running parallel. So they have the live action part of Encounters over at the Watershed, which is our, our lovely local art house cinema slash cafe bar. The animation side of things is at the Arnolfini, which is across the river. I think I've mentioned this place before. It's one of the places in Bristol I try and, and not go into too often because it uh, has a big art book section that's like a sort of siren call. So with, you know, the animation festival, obviously I have to go there. Uh, you know, I can't abstain. And I have to say, I was very, very good. So yeah, both fine venues, both uh, a very similar vibe, right, that they're in close proximity, because then if you have screenings at both sides of the festival that you want to go to, then you can just run along the bridge. It did just feel like an animation festival. There was, there was no sort of um, us versus them sort of... Um, no. It's a great separation. So obviously Kieran's done a fantastic job of of keeping the two things separate but at the same time, keeping them along the same lines, I would say. So it, so it, doesn't, it doesn't it didn't feel like, like an animation festival that was just an extension of a yeah. bigger festival. Neither took precedent over the other. And filmmakers and, and animation filmmakers, you know, there's a pretty big overlap of, you know, common oh, ground there. Yeah. So it's it's great to sort of go to the, you know, the mutual networking events and things like that. And it's always good to, you know, meet other people in the filmmaking community, even if they aren't necessarily animation, but composers, people who do editing and post-production. So yeah, the chap sort of responsible, I guess, for giving the animation festival its own sense of identity is the animation programmer, a guy called Kieran Argo. Uh, he's been doing it for a few years now. I got to chat with him between screenings. And as far as the history of the festival goes and whatnot, uh, I think it's probably best if we hand it over to him because he's the guy in the know. Excellent. A proper introduction to encounters. There you go. <laughs> Unlike this shambles, which is cobbled together. <laughs> Here's Kieran Argo. So you're the uh, animation uh, programmer, I guess, or the programmer for the animation strand. Of yes, I'm the official title is the animation program manager uh -huh. for Encounters Short Film and Animation Festival. Uh -huh. And how long have you been doing that now? Well, they, um, they set up standalone animation strand in 2010, and this is the third edition of a standalone animated encounters yeah. so it's a kind of like partner festival but running concurrently with brief encounters yeah have you found that since the festivals have been divided like that like with one live action and one animation on the other side of the river have you found that that's made it easier as far as programming content is concerned not being involved in in the programming when it was a combined live action and animation i couldn't really say the, the difficulties and the balance okay. of, of, of the two different types were, but, but I know that it's, it's a great joy to see full animation programmes back as part of the, the Encounters Festival. Yeah. I, was, I was a bit disheartened when they combined, because between 2000 and 2005 they had um, animated encounters running in the springtime. Uh -huh. So it was like a, between a three and a five day festival, but it was it was a very difficult to for the same delivery team to deliver two festivals a year. So 2005-6, I think they combined animated with brief, and it became the Encounters Festival. So I, I was a bit disappointed then because I was very active on I was the chairman of the that five year run of animated encounters and on the working committee for that. So it was a bit of a shame, as far as I was concerned, that they made that combination. I'm 
really pleased that they have a standalone animation strand because it caters specifically for animators and people you know, into animation. Yeah. I think one of the difficulties with a combined live action and animation program, you know, regardless of the quality and strength of the films in the film program, if you are a purist, if you are just wanting to see animation, it's a bit frustrating to sit through, say, 70 minutes of live action to watch 20, 15 minutes of animation. So, you know, to have a, a standalone animation program of events is is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think it's it's generally felt that way. The animation community is, is very much a sort of strong community. And there is an overlap obviously between the you know the filmmakers and the animators, but I think to have a sort of festival that kind of caters to one and the other rather than everything kind of mixed together. Absolutely. I mean, I think you get the best of both worlds now. Yeah. Uh, it was a very brave move to reinstate uh, animated encounters, um, but it's worked. Uh, the figures have been you know, building each year. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting this year because we've moved the calendar slot to September rather than every previous edition was in November. Because this September slot is right at the start of term time, we're um, uh, waiting with bated breath to just find out what the numbers are like with the, the student attendance. Yeah. Because students have always been a very welcome, significant uh, percentage of the audience. As far as uh, the selection process goes, do you find that the quality of student films nowadays is getting better, getting more watchable with the resources available to them? I think so. Obviously there are exceptions to the rule, but overall I think... Um, I think that the, the boundaries are always being pushed every year because I think with obviously the technological developments and, and the, uh, the the growth in in digital forms, you know, there are changing ways and methods, and people are still you know learning the ropes really in 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 many areas of, of digital stuff. So it's an interesting one because the the British output from the the British animation schools is, to be honest, there is a mixed bag of of quality in output. Um, Some schools are better than the others. But what what I'm always surprised about, because they have an unfair advantage, the quality of work coming out of of some of the top European, French and German schools, way surpasses the the kind of quality output of, of, of British. It might be a bit controversial to say that because Obviously, as I said, there are exceptions to the rule. There are some amazing films coming out of of some of the British animation schools. But I think in the bigger picture, the quality of the likes of Film Academy over in Stuttgart, the animation workshop in Denmark, plus, you know, Scobalan, Georges Méliès School Uh in Paris, they have just an outstanding quality to their graduate work. As with, I guess, last year, the animation screenings are divided into six sort of thematic categories. Is that decided before the selection process begins, or do you kind of look and see what No. um, I mean, we we thought doing, you know, two international programs, two Best of British, emerging talent programs, it was a bit unimaginative. So um, what we decided to do last year was to to, to put together thematic programs so that you could have a a local film up against a big, well-established name. The whole point of it is to find a loose theme so that when I start looking at the submissions, 
I just start thinking about what have I seen over the last five or six films. You know, as I go through, usually a theme emerges, and animals and birds are, are always, you know, yeah. it's, it's an easy choice of theme to, to pick up on, you know, because it's a, such a ubiquitous kind of anthropomorphic tendency within animation to, to, to sort of choose an animals. To, it's a staple, yeah, to, to choose an animal or, or birds as, as characters. So. And then I look at other themes, you know, obviously animation is great to explore, push the boundaries, exploring emotions and passions and life experiences are, are always, you know, uh, a very common theme within submitted films so I usually sort of look at something around that, for example The Trials of Life yeah. this, this, this year is, um, is an example of that Feathers and Fur Tooth and Claws are, are the two animal and, right. and bird based themed programs what, uh, what determines one from the other as far as the animal categories go? Feathers and Furs, the, the majority, are, they've got bird themes in them. But yeah. I think there's only one film that doesn't, that's Old Willie, right. which is cleaning up at, at, uh, at so many festivals at the moment. It's doing the rounds, it just won the cartoon door. Uh, it's a fantastic... And uh, he's quite furry. He's very furry, so <laughs> that film fits well yeah. in the Feathers and Fur programme. Every, every year you see, there's you know usually one or two films, sometimes more, that, that are picking up lots of awards. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad to say that um, a film from the NFTS is doing very well, Head Over Heels. Oh yeah, yeah. lovely. So that seems to be doing well as well. Putting the themes together, it's always a tricky process. You watch 500 films, you give them a rating, you go back, you readjust, you constantly go back and forth. The ones that really stand out, they're easy, you can park them. Yeah. It's the ones that... Make up the that, rest of them. That you know there's something there, there's quality on several levels, but it's when you have a number of them and you know you've only got 80 minutes of screen time to programme, but you've got four times that of, of films that you want to show. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the painful part, is making a decision. You know, I could easily put on twice the number of, of programmes of similar quality films. It's just a, a great disappointment always for any film programmer that you can't show everything you want to. And it's no reflection on the quality of the films that don't get selected. Right. I have to always underline that because the, the quality of those films is without doubt. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, it is a programmer's subjective decision at, at the end. You know, we do our best to be objective, but you can judge a film on quality, on, on you know, music, structure, narrative structure, lighting, its editing. Composition, overall delivery—you know—all these things can be reasonably objectively determined. But at the end of the day, there could be two films of similar quality, but you have to make the cruel decision and, and maybe leave one out. Yeah. Again, with having a, a screening, keeping to a theme, is there ever an, an issue where you know that there are stronger films? But say there's available space for like a couple of other films. Would a film in that instance that stays true to the theme of the screening take precedent over the, the one that is conceivably more successful? I haven't, I know what you're saying, but I haven't been faced with that dilemma, thankfully, yet. One of the biggest challenges is, is length of film. Because if I've got 80 minutes of screen time in a 90 minute program, if I've got a 20 minute film, that's a lot of screen time. So it's got to be a very special film in order for me to, to give it 
you know, to program it for that length of time. Um, because you know what what you've got to consider is generally I don't know what the average time is, but it's a lot less than 20 minutes. Your average submitted film can be you know anything between one and two minutes up to sort of five, six, seven minutes. Um, so if you think of the number of those shorter films that would have to be pushed out just yeah. to make space for that 20 minutes. Any longer film has to exceed in quality right. to, to get a place in the programme. Cool. Well, I'll let you go. Yeah, um, thanks very much for talking to me. Cheers. So a big part of the festival atmosphere, as is the case with a lot of animation festivals, Annecy, Stuttgart, etc., is the approach to the visual branding and the main design motif for encounters over the last few years was conjured up by local animation studio A Productions, and they've been doing the festival trailers for some time now. These are short animations that match up with each year's promotional visuals shown online to get the word out, and uh, they also open each screening or event, uh, and they're a big part of the festival's overall visual identity. So I managed to get some time with Paul Hill and Jane Davies at A Productions to discuss how they go about it. So to start with, maybe you two of you could talk a little bit about your personal backgrounds in animation and how you sort of came to work here at A Productions. Went to animation course in Wales, in Pontypridd. Got a few bits of bobs of work in Cardiff and then ended up doing a few tests for something at A for Animation and got my work approved. It was Pond Life years ago uh-huh. in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> And all my work got approved, which I'm sure it's because I was a girl, because it was for a woman director. Uh-huh. And then I ended up staying and got more work, and then managed to just make sure I was indispensable. And then ended up still working here when we became A Productions. Mm-hmm. And I'm still here. I also studied in Wales. I, I'd done um, some animation at school. I was doing A levels, I did a bit of animation there. Then I went to Wales, I went to Newport, University of Wales. From there, when I graduated, obviously looked for work. Mark, my boss Mark at A Productions, uh, he invited me to come over and have a, a look at the studio, but um, didn't actually have any work for me, but he was interested in the work I'd done. So then I went off again for about six months, and was unemployed and just looking for work. And I contacted him again, and at that point there was a new project they were doing which involved some After Effects work. I'd never used After Effects before, so I came over on a kind of trial basis to learn it and to to use the software. At the time it was like just when they were coming off traditional animation and going on to computers and more compositing on computers. And I think I just got it at the right time that then I was, after that project, I went on to another project and just carried on from there. So that was, I started in 99, and I've been here ever since. So when about did uh, A for Animation morph into A Productions? Is it the same thing, or is it a uh, different...? It was 2001, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's when we joined with Elm Road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when did that relationship start with the festival? That started in 2001, when they already had Brief Encounters, which was a short film festival, and then they wanted to create a new festival just for animation called Animated Encounters. So um, we were approached to do that. Mark, I think he was on the board for Animated Encounters at the time, possibly. 
and um, so we were asked to, to do a little trailer for it. They'd already got a designer, I think someone at the BBC was doing the actual design for like the posters and everything. Yeah. So they just give, gave me the files for that. It was a very simple sort of geometric shapes uh, character. So then I just had to come up with something just to do a little animation for that first one. And then again for the next couple of years, a similar thing happened. They have designs for the poster and then I just take those designs. And then they... Um, decided to bring the, the festivals back together again and make just one festival. Someone else had been doing trailers for the Brief Encounters stuff, but that just seemed to be that they took the, the poster image, which was um, sort of rings of films, and then they do a little animation on that, and then they just show clips of films. Yeah. So when I got it, I thought, well, I have to maintain that kind of visual look of having these rings on the front but I'll then use that as a kind of a bookend on either end of the trailer and then in the middle I can then just do whatever I like, mm -hmm. basically. I still had to show clips, so I didn't want to show just clips in a kind of a one after the other, I wanted to just involve them into whatever I was doing. So it then became sort of a way of finding interesting visual motifs to do with these clips. So from year to year, is there sort of a pressure to make it sort of different, like unique? I kind of created this pressure on myself. No right. one asked me to do it always differently, but it, that's just how it developed it. And then I did one which had these figures, which had screens for heads, mm -hmm. uh, and they really liked that. And so then they, the actual publicity people also adopted that as a motif for the festival. And then, and then it kind of changed into... I had to use that every year, so then that became, that, that kind of replaced the motif of the rings, it was now the, this cine man figure. They coined the term cine man. Yeah, oh. they coined that. And so um, then it was a matter of just having these characters in different environments, until this year where the designers, Smith and Milton, pushed it into a different direction. They've, they're still using the kind of seaman idea of a figure with a screen for a head, yeah. uh, but they, they've now used a, a photograph of a real person with a, with a screen in an environment. So this year it was, it was more following their lead of how they'd designed the look of the... Of the yeah, because they, they, they gave us a picture and it, it was that figure that you see in all the branding now, but mm. on the backdrop was a, like a long exposure shot of Tokyo Right. In a built-up area, shiny, like. shiny buildings and lights. Yeah. So our brief was do that because I, I do a lot of photography in my spare time, and I use film, old school, and okay. uh, I just knew that we could do that using cross-processing. The right. process is called. So me and Paul, we went out once with a digital camera and just sort of looked. How can we do this? Because obviously we don't live in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So we got sort of like the light, the, the right sort of light-ish range to get the, the like the time of day was about nine-ish. Because we wanted it sort of dark-ish, but light-ish, so we'd still get some definition in the sky. But we needed traffic, so obviously they needed their lights on. And then we went out with film, didn't we? And then took some more pictures, and then we got a better idea of what would look best on the film. Because obviously we had to wait a day for it to all be processed. Oh, I would add that of Liz encounters, because when we said about the process we would try, that it, initially I, just, I, I thought, geez, this is going to cost a lot of money. Because mm -hmm. obviously the film's expensive. Um, but she contacted Photographique in Bristol and asked if they'd donate any film, and they did. 
Excellent. So they gave us 12 reels of film and they said that they'd do the processing, it was brilliant. Yeah. But yeah, we went out, we took a load of photos and then we sort of could see that the time of day was after nine. It was in the middle of summer, so yeah. I don't think it reached the longest day yet. No. So every time we go out every, every week, it'd have to be slightly later to get the right light and yeah. I think eventually we were coming back at like midnight. Yeah. We were actually oh, finishing. Mm. But I think we, we, we went out in about seven trips, seven nights. We yeah. did it over a course of about two months. But there's there's just not much traffic at that yeah. time of night. <laughs> and so we'd always get immensely excited when a bus would drive past. <laughs> <laughs> because you'd get the, the height of, of the light and the windows would mm. give you these streaks of light going across the yeah. thing. But we probably went a slightly over-the-top photographing buses. buses. <laughs> and then we realised this is all going to look like buses. <laughs> so what we did, we um, went to different areas and got some angles of places. Paul said point it that way or whatever, mm. things like that. And then we'd take a series of normally about 12 pictures for each location. Mm. Some worked, some didn't. We knew it would be a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. And then after we'd done about 11 rolls of film, and I think you were confident, Paul was confident yeah. that we'd have enough location. Well, the trailer was going to be shorter this year as well, yeah. it was going to be 45 seconds for the whole thing, which meant there was only going to be a, a limited amount of actual shots I could include in the actual trailer. But the rest of them got sent off to Smith and Milton mm. to actually use in the rest of the publicity. Yeah, so mm. the, actually all the branding and stuff and the photos you've seen and like the posters and everything, that's all photos used that we used to do the trailer. Some some of right. the locations weren't in the trailer, but they're from our photographs. Right. But um, they were great though. I really liked what they did because they some of them they, they combined like two or three, sometimes four photographs. You mentioned uh, cross processing before. Yeah. Can you describe what that actually is? It's a secret. <laughs> 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 no, what it is, you use slide film and then you develop it in normal negative solutions which it then oversaturates the colour and the contrast. Mm. It's, it's, so it sort of um, replicates the look of what they originally given you. I think, you know, we got pretty close to that Tokyo picture. Is there a quality, a sort of colour quality to that that distinguishes it from, say, just kind of applying saturation in post-production? Yeah, it's film, yeah. isn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> no, it, 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 I was a bit nervous after we got the go-ahead to do it, and then I started doubting my own abilities as a photographer, as uh-huh. you do. <laughs> so we took out my digital camera as a backup, just in case. Yeah. But um, I think we were quite pleased and... Paul seemed quite happy with the results halfway through that we just forgot about that backup of digital. But you can see a big difference is in mm. the, the you know, the quality's quite hard to achieve, I think, just by if you're doing it digitally, mm. yeah, it would take you a while just to have to go yeah. through and apply filters and mm. things on top of your photograph to get to look what you're basically getting straight away from yeah, just, yeah. The, just the film version of it. So mm. it seems the easiest way of doing it. Mm. And the other big sort of difference is like before the characters, the sort of screen characters, were animated more like stick figures, and now they're live action mm. people with their heads, you know, the screen heads. Were you in charge of that as well? Yeah, we, we did do that as well, but we mm. did use digital for that. Because yeah. they're quite see through, <laughs> yeah. so they're not like a big feature of what we see. Mm. What determines what's actually playing on the screens? They encounters send me like 12 films 
and then I have to go through and pick clips from them. So I have to try and find a clip which kind of represents the film in, a, in the best way. Mm -hmm. Without, I always try not to sh show clips from near the end of the film because I don't want to give away yeah. sort of major plot details. They used to send me films which are actually going to be in the festival. They always ended up sending them so late to me that I didn't. I had so much, so little time to actually go through and find the clips. So now they give me the clips from the winning films from the year before. Right. So it's a bit. They know what films they're going to put in. They know that they're the best ones. They can show in in the uh, trailer. Um, and then everything is all put together by Paul. Yeah, um, all like composited. Yeah. Oh, this year because normally it's um, James. Yeah, who we does have the different music. musicians. We usually have a, a musician called James T. Lundy, who's done like, the last few mm. trailers. This year we went something different. We went with a, a, a group called Three Came Whale. I gave them a bit of a guide on, on how long some of their sections needed to be because we need right. to show the logo at the front and then the middle section, which is the clips, and then another final section, which is the logos at the end. Uh, and, and so yeah, I just edit to that music usually. Mm. Was there any particular reason they decided to go in a different musical? I think, cause, uh, I think it was just because everything had changed so much because we come off the using the very graphical city men characters onto these photographic ones and the whole look had changed. I think the idea was just to change the music as well so it wasn't, didn't sound the same as before. Yeah. I mean, generally you don't do much by way of branding type stuff here. No, uh, but we yeah. can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what kind of uh, projects do you usually work on at A Productions? Well, lately so, it's been children's programmes for mm -hmm. series. Well, it's always been, that's always been our main area, just because that's where you're most likely to get money to do something from. We've done the occasional adverts, and years ago A for Animation did a spurt of um, music videos. Mm -hmm. It was one for Madonna. Um, yeah. Elton, Elton John as well. Yeah. Wow. You know, we're, we're not fussy, we'll do anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you do what, what comes along, really. And then mm -hmm. um, I think we've just got the reputation of doing series work. It's like we just finished driving our story train, mm -hmm. and all, yeah. of, all of that was a UK production of the episodes we did here, um, like for the first series. Second series was part funded by. Um, a company in another country, so um, half of that was done in the other country. But um, mm. and the stuff we can't do, we just get you know like post production like sound and things like that. But we haven't got the facilities here. Then we just use companies in Bristol. Yeah. You know? And all the uh, encounters trailers so far up on your website. Yeah, because I've done them. I've been involved in all of them since two thousand one. They didn't do one in two thousand four because I wasn't at festival. And that's a good place to look at. It's the only place that they've got them that all together. Yeah. All yeah. together. Yeah. It's quite interesting to look at the progression as well. Yeah. Yeah. That was Jane Davies and Paul Hill, and the address for that website is mrpaulhill.co.uk. That's Mr. spelled out. And go to the section Encounters Festival Trailers. Uh, as they say, you can check them all out there. They're very good stuff. So, of course, you don't have a film festival without films. What films stood out? You know, i got to be honest with you, I, I, much as I come off as a sunbeam on this podcast, 
occasionally you walk into one of these types of things and, and think, God almighty, what a bunch of nonsense. But I have to say, at the end of the day, with this year's edition, and actually last year's as well, uh, I did sort of get a sense of, wow, there's a lot of consistency here. There'll be things to like, even if it isn't necessarily... Um, you know, story-wise, you know, you can appreciate the visual side of things, you can appreciate the technical processes. The visual invention, I liked in a lot of films, where the story's kind of left me cold, but I guess it helps to be in the industry when you can appreciate things in different levels. You know what I mean? Mm. Whether or not they'd work outside of a festival environment, you know, without an industry-centric audience is up for debate sometimes. But, you know, any appreciation you can get from stuff like that is, is, is all good, and this is the environment where films like that would be appreciated. That being said, a lot of films are just overall pretty good. And every year has its crop, and I think this year's Encounters did a good job of keeping things well filtered. I I like what Encounters do. They separate their programs. Instead of saying Professional Program 1, Professional Program 2, each one's got a theme. Yeah. I noticed that. I think that's a nice touch. As Kieran was sort of saying, it does kind of make things, you know, just sort of generally easier, not having it be by, you know, territory and that kind of thing. There was this year the focus on Finland, and last year I think it was Brazil. It sort of makes more sense to have, like, say, a screening that focuses on a certain region, you know, and have it be like a yearly thing. And going back to the point of mixing any type of films together for any, you know, compilation or anthology or whatever, it's hard to get that chemistry right. So, yeah, having it be thematic sort of helps things. As long as you pick a good theme... Generally speaking, this year's divided things up in a a pretty easy-to-comprehend way. You sort of knew what you were getting into. So I was going to write down a bunch of films that I liked, but uh, I'm lazy, and I didn't do that. I didn't prepare. So I just have the uh, program in front of me, and I'm just going to leaf through it, and and I'm going to like pick out the films that I really liked. And I'm not sure how many of these you've seen. Beginning with the Trials of Life screening. It's mainly about like sort of what awkward people animators can be, or awkward people they can portray, or, you know. It's a... Pretty strong theme in general, I think, when you work in this industry. Or any mm. industry. People are just nuts. <laughs> um, so a lot of films about, like, insecurities or anxieties. Films about being a little bit crazy, that kind of thing. It opened really strong with a film called I'm Fine Thanks, which is uh, Eamon O'Neill. And that was a kind of somewhat evocative of, of David O'Reilly a little bit, like, in terms of yeah. the... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I get that. I get that. I um, but more a sort of single narrative, like one guy's kind of uh, yeah. horrible, horrible existence. Yeah. And uh, it was very funny. But I, it's, like, funny when, like, you see something mean happen to someone. As someone's, like, a sort of weird involuntary impulse, you kind of chuckle. Mm. Uh, and then you feel bad. It's like, why did I do that? What, yeah. what a horrible human being I am. That was kind of the vibe I had with this film, where I was like, ah... It's, it's funny when this guy, you know, fails at every turn, but uh, it's also kind of tragic. Yeah. And uh, I'm not entirely sure. How you call that pathos? Yeah, I guess so. But not pathos in a uh, be sad now kind of way. Yeah. You know, because some people kind of lay on the, the poignancy a little too thick. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, there's no um, poignancy. It's more of a sort of... Uh, it's, it's, yeah. It's very colourful in mm. a sort of both senses. It's almost adorable, but it's... Um, like I say, the, the, the trials that he goes through leave you feeling a little bit rotten inside. It's a sort of self-destruction of, you know, hate toward the world and anger that could kind of, you know, lead to someone eventually imploding. Mm. And uh, I know a couple of people that are, you know, very similar to this guy. <laughs> um, and it, it's it's like a cautionary tale almost. Uh, yeah, I like that one a lot. There's actually a few in a row that I liked. The one after that was uh, the new Joseph Pierce film, uh, The Pub which is a very, very distinctive sort of 
uh, uh, exaggerated, embellished, like rotoscoping style, like filming actors and then just sort of drawing over the faces. And mm-hmm. as things are said or events unfold, the kind of, I don't know, it just sort of depends if it's a sort of projection of true nature or that kind of thing of like, but the faces contort and morph and stuff like that. And um, he's done a couple of films. Uh, well, I mean, my favorite is the first one, the stand-up comedian, uh, which was just called Stand Up. Um, that one was like a big sort of conversation piece, you know, the year that came out. I think it was a student film. I think it may have been an NFTS film, actually. Hmm. They did another film called A Family Portrait. and that's, I, I think this is the third one. Yeah. And it has the same style, as I mentioned before. Its general premise is, I think, a, relatable might be the wrong word. But it's a great sort of character study. It's a great environment for, you know, different people from different walks of life, you know, coming in and out of a pub, um, sometimes from the perspective of the, the woman behind the bar. It has a really nice opening shot, which is sort of about the, uh, the barmaid, who is a sort of attractive young lady and her sort of self-image and insecurity about that. And then it sort of goes into the, uh, you know, the clientele coming in. Have you seen the film? I've not seen the pub, no. no I've not seen it yet. Worth keeping your eyes skinned for, because it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting one. It's probably while not being at all like a, a general audience, you know, mm-hmm. as, as very few you know, of these animated short films are, um, it probably has more that, to sort of engage a wider audience, perhaps. Yes, you know? yeah. And I'd be interested to see if he, if this is gonna be like the last film where he uses the same device. It's such a distinctive style and it's such a distinctive method. The way I kind of saw it, and I may be completely misreading this, but now that there are three films using this style, it seemed like it, it kind of went together rather nicely as a sort of social satire trilogy type thing, or social observation, rather. Hmm. I'll look forward to seeing that one. Yeah. So next up was a uh, Canadian film, an NFB film. It was about vampires, but it was actually quite good, despite the fact that vampires are sort of an overused theme nowadays. Really, really lovely uh, texturing, like sort of what I would assume would be sort of digital pencil strokes, you know. Yeah. But, you know, every sort of you know frame of animation is really lusciously... Applied, yeah, yeah. very visually uh, busy. Yeah, it was a sort of nice, easy to follow, sweet story. It was more. I think I was more enamoured of the visual side of things yeah. than anything else. And yeah. I, I didn't know originally, but um, obviously looking at the credits, you see Christopher Plummer's name prop up, and you think, what? Wait, really? And it's nice in the sense that they're not relying on on a sort of name association to mm. carry the film. Yes, yeah, as, yeah. as um, plenty of films have in the past. Yeah, yeah, we did a very nice job. And music by the Young Gods, which you know, is pretty good. It worked very well. I'm trying to sort of think of an era. It reminds me of. It makes me think of like sort of editorial cartoons of a certain decade, but it's it's it looks quite it. timeless in the same in the same breath. Yeah, modern it? and at the same time uh, uh, traditional. Yeah. Quite old-fashioned. Also in this program was Emma Birch's film, Being Bradford Dillman. Uh, we have an interview with her on the Squiggly website. So when you're done listening to us, go check that out. One of those films that took like forever to come together, wasn't it? Like nearly 10 years or something like yeah, that. Yeah, she goes into a lot of uh, detail with, uh, with Ellie, the writer who interviewed her. There were a couple of programs that were like animal-themed rather than just one. But, you know, one was on the sort of, you know, fluffy side and the other was more on the sort of vicious side. There's some really impressive stop motion. Another Canadian film called The Fox and the Chickadee. I really, really liked the animation. The voices were very like, um, this is a kid's film kind of, you know, like really, really... Hammy. But, you know, I, the way the animation was put to the, the acting was very good. You know? Yeah. Uh, really nice to do, especially the, the bird. Really sort of nice body language. Sort of standard, uh, uh, inoffensive kids fairy tale. It came after a film that was far more sort of economical. It was more design-oriented. It was called The Little Bird and the Leaf. 
and it was also about a bird and a fox and I think maybe putting it right after the other film might have been a bit of a misstep so maybe an immediate comparison is not necessarily a good thing yeah because they they both worked perfectly well in their own right and I think putting say the fox and the chickadee in like a children's screening might have served it better that's something that happened a few times actually with various films so you'd have films that would be very very adult and then you'd have something like The Gruffalo's Child at the end. And it's like, well, it's a good film. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's nicely done. And there's a lot to like about it. But it's really sort of at odds with, you know, some of the weird cartoon sex and violence that had come before or bad language and that kind of thing. And it's, it's kind of hard to, like, switch your brain from one state to another. In one of the other animal screenings was a film called Feral by Daniel Sousa. It was quite compelling and it was very atmospheric. And it was about a little boy... Uh, uh, who'd grown up in the woods, sort of raised by wolves, and he's trying to be uh, assimilated into a kind of Victorian-looking society. Um, or maybe that was just the design style. I'm not sure what era it was set in, from memory. Simple story idea, a variation on one that, you know, is, is vaguely familiar. Um, but really what sold it was just, just looking at the way it was put together. Kind of like richly textured, you know, a la the snowman, but, you know, a little more sort of contemporary. And really well-observed body acting. Because you have to consider, A how, you know, a, a child moves and acts, and, and B, how a child who's been amongst wolves would move and act. Hmm. And that's a hard one to, to get right, but the guy did a really good job with it. There were a lot of really good ones, I'm just sort of skimming, to be honest, because I could talk about all of them, mostly in a sort of complimentary way. I really loved this one. It's called The Heart of Winter. Uh, it's from Switzerland. Uh, the director is Isabel Fabez. And this was, a, you know, something that could very easily be for kids. Uh, it gets a little dark at the end. Maybe like very little kids wouldn't be um, at peace with. Let's just say it's about like adorable woodland creatures, you know, scurrying around for food in winter and trying not to get uh, eaten. And um, spoiler alert, not all of them make it. Yeah. The end. But uh, it was just one of those films that just made me so like, I don't know why, because I'm so sort of cynical and curmudgeonly in many, many respects, you might have noticed. But there's something about the music and the character designs, the way the music was timed to the things the characters were doing, and it just made me feel happy. It's like a sort of animation-y Prozac pill. Yeah. <laughs> Success. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that one a lot. Another um, film I can see in the program in front is Moxie, which very good at dividing opinions. I mean, let's, yeah. let's hear what you think. Uh, it was directed by Stephen Irwin, who I assume isn't the, the Stephen Irwin who was killed by a stingray. I liked elements of it. I liked the way it was put together. I liked because it, it was sort of a Hertzfeld type vibe I got from it. Yeah. Um, I liked the the premise. I thought it was weird, but it wasn't you know over the top weird. The voice, whoever was doing the narration, uh, doesn't say here, uh, did a really good job. I liked yes. the performance. Yeah. Um, I thought some of the stuff that was written. Like, certain activities, like, seem a little like they were written more to, for, to get people to sort of be like, oh, did they say that? And actually, when you sort of slather on the shock value, it, it has much less of an effect. Hmm. But it's the little understated things that really kind of get people, you know, sort of talking afterwards, I find. Yeah. Uh, didn't hamper the film, though, really. I mean, it, it did, I'm pretty sure, exactly what it set up to achieve. Um, uh, I, I said at the beginning that it divided opinions, but I think you've got more or less exactly the same opinion as me. There, <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, Moxie is very, very good film. Have you encountered like negative? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, whenever I see it in a festival, or something I turn around and get trying to sort of gauge reaction, and it's usually a, either a twisted face or like a yeah, yeah that's a good film. Yeah, I, I think like if that. I was the filmmaker, I would be quite happy to hear that. Like, I would much rather have a film that people 
either liked a lot or hated a lot than a film that people were just like, eh, meh, right. yeah. Another program was Time Passages, and these were a bunch of films that dealt with the idea of time being sort of occasionally a character in the film, or sometimes it was just playing around with time as a storytelling device. Some of them just looked kind of nice, and I didn't really necessarily get the story. There was a film called For the Remainder by Omar Ben David, which uh, had a really, more than the story itself, it was more like the visual idea of, of the way the CG was textured. It was this kind of translucent uh, paint stroke effect, and it looked kind of skeletal. Kind of like the sort of old glass animals you'd see in, like, you know, uh, uh, cheap souvenir shops where it would be painted from the inside, you know? Mm. Um, that like kind a of wire looked, sculpture or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And kind of organic looking, but not, like, visceral and gross. It was, it was sort of abstract, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who's the, who's the guy? What's the guy called who does the body world sculptures? Crazy German doctor guy? It, 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 it did look like crazy German doctor uh-huh. guy a little bit but but more classy than that more sort of not like you say not as grotesque mm-hmm. there was no grotesque element to it because of the, the style you could see the character you could see its heart beating you could see it sort of every move mm. beautifully I really enjoyed it variations of it I've seen before but the way he he textured this in particular it was just one of those things where I'm sitting there going god I wish I thought of that yeah you know yeah I feel that way quite a lot <laughs> A uh, nice little German film called Atlas, um, director Ike Arndt, I think is the name. Um, and very, very simple idea, just very nicely done, nicely timed. Um, very kind of rudimentary animation style and design style, but just, you know, a nice little concept. And it was sort of taking that kind of Greek myth of, of you know, Atlas and the gods and stuff, and then sort of combining it with the sort of Darwinian history of the world. You know, it's a, it was a, sort of an interesting way of, of bringing those two together, you know. And it has a turtle that's a car with helicopter blades in it, which I like. <laughs> that right. makes any sense. Right. Well, one of them. There was this one film that I think people lost a bit of patience with. I really liked it. It was sort of hypnotic. It's called 663114. Uh, it's a Japanese film, a guy called Isamu Hirabayashi. And the whole film pretty much is a, a 66-year-old Chikada climbing up a, a, <laughs> a flat vertical surface, either a tree or a wall or something, and it's just him climbing and climbing and climbing, and there's this very sort of low-register, monotone, uh, intense uh, monologue playing over it with subtitles, you know, um, and uh, about his journey and about how, you know, he needs to get to the top against, you know, all, against the odds. And uh, and there's a little bit of activity toward the end, but for the most part, it's just this thing climbing. And I'm just staring at it in trance, <laughs> like, go, you can make it. <laughs> but I think some other people were kind of shuffling in their seats a bit. Mm. Had a really nice kind of surreal ending, too. It would have been sort of impossible to predict or, or explain, but it was kind of sort of indicative of the cyclical nature of things so did you did you feel rewarded with the ending having invested so much time in it not rewarded so much i just quite liked it i just like weirdness yeah you know worth sitting through i felt like it was but i'm kind of special (laughs) a film that i think should have won something uh and it didn't i'm sure it's been winning a lot uh is the new don hertzfeld film Hmm. have you seen this yes oh yeah yeah it's great (laughs) (laughs) I um I have to say I was watching this and I'm I'm I hadn't seen it before I I think I'd read that Don Hertzfeld had a film in but I hadn't been looking at the programs before I went in and I'm watching this film and I'm going wow this is like a a, a Don Hertzfeld film 
But like if he took if he made this really bold new style choice and change of artistic direction and and writing uh, uh, approach and whatever. So I felt like a bit of a horse's ass when at the end, you know, directed by Don Hertzfeld comes up. I felt like a complete horse's ass when I realized that it's actually the third film in like a trilogy. He's made two others. And the so the artistic change of direction happened years and years ago. <laughs> And bizarrely, I just have not been aware of these films. And I've been to a lot of festivals and short film screenings. And for some reason, it's it's about a guy called Bill. It's a trilogy of this sort of unfortunate guy with like a familial history of mental illness and, and brain disease and cancer and stuff like that. And it's, it's sort of hard to tell what cocktail of these he has. But he basically is sort of plagued by issues with memory loss and strokes and um, cognitive ability that sort of erodes over time. It's very, very good. It's very uh, uh, haunting. It's funny. The only other person I can think of that does that well is Adam Elliott, who will take a subject matter like cerebral palsy or depression or alcoholism. And because it's honest, that automatically has these funny elements to it. Yeah. And, of course, very tragic elements. And I think, you know, you could you could see like a, a TV movie about the hardships of living with depression or alcoholism or whatever and probably be a bit less moved by it because it would be more like this concerted attempt to pull your heartstrings. Yeah. If you if you understand the honesty of something like this, then you mm. would appreciate the tragedy. And that's what yeah. that's what comes across so well in like Adam Elliott and Don Hirschfeld, all, yeah. all these sort of these directors that are so good. Uh, uh, pulling off uh, something like this, and this is another film. It says that twenty-three minutes. I would have said ten. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't have said twenty-three minutes. One thing I remember, we were talking about it uh, afterwards, me and the, the people I'd seen it with, and um, there was a comment of like maybe sort of toward the end they could have lopped off, you know, three or four minutes and taken it down from fifteen minutes to ten, thinking it was like fifteen minutes long. Wow, so you yeah. look and it's like closer to twenty-five. It's like okay, this thing actually kind of rushed by. Yeah. I guess the the sense is that this is the last of the three films, certainly by the ending. The ending is this very like Charlie Kaufman sort of synecdoche New York type thing, which I won't give away. But uh, in the context of seeing subsequently the first two films, it made a lot of sense of a lot of other things, but it did perfectly stand up on its own. But yeah, no, that was probably one of my absolute favorites of the festival. It's called It's Such a Beautiful Day. I probably should have led with that. <laughs> um, did you did, did the audience I mean in the screen I, I saw it last November at Bradford it was quite an early screening of it um, did the audience laugh every time they went um, I am in pain yeah that was <laughs> that was <laughs> such a such a sort of contrast His such a contrast bed mate. yeah and the, and the kind of repeated behaviour and stuff like that yeah which is one of the more sort of like alarming and, and, and disconcerting parts of either living with Alzheimer's or living after a stroke or, or mm. living with some kind of degenerative brain disorder is when you repeat your behavior. But there is a kind of inherent ludicrousness to it as well. Of, you know, who keeps leaving all these groceries here? Like he keeps coming back with more and more. Yeah. And the one hand keeps dropping the coffee. He's like, what is wrong with this mug? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, it's oh. So the last screening of the six of them uh, was the lighter side more accessible animation I guess overall stuff played for comedy or stuff played to be heartwarming kind of thing there were some abstract films in there which was an interesting choice uh, one of them called Two by Stephen Sobotnik I actually quite like and I'm not usually the abstract animation fan but I think uh, abstract animation works when they really do a nice job with the it's like watching a screensaver yeah <laughs> which I apologize if that sounds insulting <laughs> to the director but uh, you know when, you, when you're watching something that doesn't have a, a narrative um, but it's still quite compelling, is what I, what I mean by that. 
But this had a few staples, I guess, of the, the comedy films that are doing the rounds. The new Brothers McLeod, mm-hmm. uh, Phone Home. It's a nice, very sort of short, simple uh, uh, skit type. They're, they're great. Like, have you seen yeah. the Isle of, uh, Isle of Spag? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. There was a Darcy Prendergast film, Easy Way Out, which is like a sort of music video, I guess, to... Uh, Yes, that's really, really pixelation music, stop motion music video. Um, we actually have an interview with him up on the site uh, from when the music video came out, which is worth checking out. It's quite an old one. Obviously, we're on top. We've got our finger on the pulse. We've got, you know, <laughs> months ago. So if you obviously search on the Squiggly website, uh, you'll see that. I think Ellie interviewed them. That's uh, she's, she's done quite a few interviews. We've, we've mentioned her a few times in this podcast. She's good. She's yeah, she's good. A, it's good to have a good group of people willing to sort of help out with the community of Squiggly. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a nice video. I liked it. I liked the song. It was kind of slightly Michel Gondry-ish, I guess. Um, yeah. The way that sort of, you know, 360s around the room. Yeah. You know? uh, lovely visual ideas. Yeah. Like um, cotton wool smoke and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. A couple of films by Darren Walsh, and these are part of a series by the character called Bob, philosophizing and, and waxing introspective about little things about life and the universe and everything. Uh, it's the same guy who did Angry Kid. Yeah, it's the pretty much exact same animation style of a live action actor, with a uh, you know interchangeable masks for different you know facial expressions and whatnot. And uh, the cool thing about that was that they were filming new ones as the festival was going on. There's a gallery space adjacent to the screening rooms, so you could sort of you know poke your head in and and watch them get it done. So you know, one of those simple types of of little you know. Uh, a series of vignettes just sort of taking you know recorded conversation a la Creature Comforts and all the stuff that came after that he's your typical pub philosopher isn't he so. another very nice little short and sweet one uh, Irish film Chris O'Hara A Different Perspective um, this was just a really nicely designed one layout kind of uh, film just sort of playing around with you know the perspective and the depth of field kind of thing uh, as the uh, title indicates Really like the character design on this one, as well as the, just the layout design. Um, very kind of Mark Baker-ish, you know, that sort of side view, almost Picasso-like style, you know. But, you know, unique enough to be a sort of individual type of style. One of those films that wouldn't translate to 3D, you know. No, I mean? no. <laughs> and, and because of the layout and because of the, the items in the film, you are constantly surprised and constantly treated to, to a little gag here and there. Yeah. It's a very entertaining film. Hmm. Our friend from uh, Bird Box, Ant Blades, who uh, was interviewed a couple of podcasts ago, mm-hmm. uh, one of his viral videos got in. It was Chop Chop. It was a big crowd pleaser. Armin film, Pythagosaurus. Yeah. I don't know anyone who doesn't like that. No. Uh, it's oh. Peter Peak. It's just very funny. Uh, it's, I've seen it a few times. It's, it's incredibly dumb, but for the purposes of being dumb, you know, um, it's great. Peter Peak's great at, at, at double acts. If you noticed, his his work is always like humdrum and things like that. It's oh, he did that one too. Yeah, I like. It, yeah, it's always a double sense. act, and it's all a pim. He did pim pop as well. It's mm-hmm. always like a double act. He's great at double acts. Yeah, I remember seeing humdrum not that long ago. Well, about four five years ago, um, in the very sort of early stages, I think of my animation MA, and and it really kind of occurring to me. Wow, that's exactly how a short film should be structured hmm. for that particular type of audience. You know what I mean? It it just it has this interesting uh, concept for how the visuals are. That was like the sort of shadow animation, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Which wasn't something that was that common, you know, especially for a sort of narrative comedy animation. Um, the relationship with the characters was good. The back and forth was great. The nice little silly ending, you know. Um, everything was sort of wrapped up well. Very good job of that. Sticking to the Aardman theme, David Sproxton 
played a key part in the festival, didn't he? Yes, he being the chair of the board at Encounters, and of course one third of the uh, Ardman Triumvirate. The other two, of course, being Peter Lord and Nick Park. Um, we interviewed Peter Lord in the first podcast, so that's two down now. Yeah. He's been a big part of this festival for a long time, I mean, pretty much since it began. So his role within Ardman is, is predominantly producer. I mean, they're all involved in to a degree, pretty much everything that comes out of the studio. Such is the nature of the beast when you, you know, start a sort of small potatoes indie company that then becomes this huge cultural behemoth, you're, you mm-hmm. know, responsible for, for many things. So why don't we just let him sort of take it away, really? This is uh, David Sproxton. So my involvement goes back uh, right to the start. Uh, we, Ardman, were involved in a thing called, um, well, it was called the Animation Festival, and it was slightly itinerant. We had it in Bristol for a while. Anyway, to cut a long story short, there was a bid between Bristol and Cardiff as to where it would go, and it had a it had a board which was uh, wasn't located anywhere. In other words, it was a, more or less a London baseball, but the actual festival took place around Citizen in the UK. And Bristol lost the Animation Festival. This goes back a, this goes back 18, 20 years now. And we thought. Oh dear, that's a shame, because actually we've got some commitment from the city council for funding. And I talked to a chap here who was, whose role was to develop culture in all its forms, the Bristol Cultural Development Partnership. And we thought, actually, why don't we start a short film festival? Because within short films, you can probably show the best of animation anywhere. So we'll get the animation kind of under the radar. And it's a good idea. So we started Proof Encounters 18 years ago. Uh, and I was on the board, it had different board structure, so I've actually been on it for 18 years, one way or another. And Ardman have always sponsored it, not to a large amount, but it's always sponsored it. So, uh, we've, yes, we've been involved from day one. The animation part of it grew up quite quickly, particularly when the world went digital. And suddenly was, my God, there's a lot more material coming out now. Let's run an animation festival as part of Encounters, but in a different part of the year. So it was animated in April, Brief Encounters live action bit in November. We then found that running two festivals a year with the same crew's hard work and funding was tough. So we amalgamated them um, and just called it Encounters for a few years. The anime said, oh, no, we're getting lost here. We'd like our own identity. So for the last couple of years, you've actually run them in parallel. I always felt that it's always good to have live action and the animators together. It's quite a lot to learn from each other. Funding, writing, all that kind of stuff. The creative side in particular. Although they, are, they can be seen as two rather distinct genres, as it were. Yeah. As things became more digital, and particularly in the short form, you were seeing films where, is this live action or is this animation? You know, there's so much either post-production or image manipulation or so much cooperation that there was this wonderful blend. And we thought, actually, this is crazy. We need, we need to stick this together more. Because these days, with the way people make films, they just use any tool they've got. Yeah. So, as we're running the two together, so you can flip between the two. If you're an animator and you just want to do animation, you can spend your days with your Rafini, which is yeah. great. Uh, if you're live action, it's more based here. If you want to pop between the two, you can. And it actually works really quite well. So you've got a lot a bit more of the mixing going on, yeah. particularly in the networking stuff, which is good. So that's my involvement in a nutshell. It goes back to day one. Cool. I do feel that it does sort of work better going back to the way it's sort of separated. I think it's clearer. I mean, you'll see in the program, you know, everything is, you know, runs to the front. You can't possibly get to everything on both of them. It's easier to administrate or to, to deliver 
the two simultaneously. So Kieran kind of manages the animation bit and sorts out all the content on those programs. Liz focuses on the live action. But all the parties meet at the board meetings and the key meetings. And what, 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 you know, I will have a full debrief on this one in a month or so's time. Um, and also it means you can get, you know, like Sam Fell, you can get kind of top names yeah. coming in more easily. Um, and you'll get probably a bigger audience uh, because the live action guys may want to see this person as well um, on, on, a, on, on, on a future level in particular. So I think it generally works really quite, really quite well. And it's sort of, in a way, it's easier for some of the funders to see how they can put their money into one show and you get two hits from it. In other yeah. words, you're going to get a So that's good. Yeah. Particularly, like, you know, it's sort of the Channel 4s and broadcasters who, are, who may be doing animation um, or they're attached to both sides, anyway, like the BBC or the BFI. I was talking to uh, uh, Kieran yesterday about the way the screenings are divided and how like the recurring themes all the submitted films. Yeah. Um, what's your sort of take on that? Like, do you think there's a reason like certain types of subject matter are particularly appealing for animators or filmmakers? Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, a lot of student films about gloom and doom. Aren't they, you know, <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, I, you, you you get a comedy strand. I, I think, you know, there, there's a fashion. There'll probably be a, a, a flurry of films next year around sport right. and have the Olympics. Ooh, you know, I could do a funny film on you know whatever or a film yeah. around that. I'm sure next year we'll see. Uh, yeah, there will be both in the live action animation side. They're probably you know, things that influence people's imagination. Yeah, it's come before. Um, I think the other thing that happens is you see animated films. Oh, that's what an animated film is. I need to make one of those. Yeah. So you see these sort of veins of or these strands of interest. I remember going to. I don't know, some animation festivals in like Zagreb and you know, all the East European films always had, you know, cellos or double bass soundtracks, you know, quite gloomy, oh, that's what you do, you put in a, well, you just put in a solo piano or something, <laughs> you could do something else, but it's just a trend, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a good way of doing it, rather than just saying, you know, 16 films from Poland or yeah. 12 films from whatever, actually, let's mix up all the locations, but put it around a... Thing. Uh, it's a thing. Yeah. And it's, it's more fun, actually. It's more fun. Yeah. 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 Do you find that the selection this year is sort of balanced? Well, I hate to say this, but I've actually seen very, very little. I did some of the pre-selection, uh-huh. sort of dead pre-selection, but I managed to get to very, very few screenings, just right. the way it is. Talk to people like you all the time, you know. <laughs> How valuable would you say, like, exposure and yeah. involvement in the festival is to, say, younger filmmakers? Well, it's an interesting question. We have this debate at the meeting about, you know, with Vimeo and YouTube, why do you show short films that are already out there? Yeah. Sitting on a big screen is different. Yeah. I'm on the jury of the Depict thing again this year, and, you know, you watch it on your computer, and then you sit on a big screen, and they just read in a different way. It's a sort of, you know, it's a constant debate. It is not, you know, having everything online is not going to stop us putting films on a big screen. Yeah. A lot of the better filmmakers realise actually you do a whole bank uh, because for some festivals want exclusives, they want premieres, they may have a policy, they may have sold rights. So the really contemporary stuff will tend not to be online. Yeah. Student films might be, but the sort of more advanced short film, probably a whole bank there as they take the films around the festival circuit. And we'll see in a few years' time, you know, when everybody's got connected to TVs and 72-inch screens, um, we may just say, all sit at home, 
watch them online, and then we'll tweet each other. <laughs> I hope not, but you guys, I can see that happening. You know. <laughs> you think the state that things are now, as far as like the role digital plays, is, is beneficial, like yeah. in terms of, of cost of transfers and that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, if you run a clock back. Uh, to the start 18, 20 years ago when mostly stuff was delivered on film you know 16mm, 35 a bit of stuff on video you know low band dramatics the, you know, the, the range of media you were dealing with and the logistics of projection and in a way the cost of entry you know could you could you could you make a film if you've got to find a film camera play film stock and now it's uploads it's all on the server in terms of the sheer logistics of running the festival it's a lot easier You've got hell of a lot more movies, films coming in for selection. Uh, so the, the pre-selection committee issues how you pre-select, you know, break that workload down into little chunks. Uh, because you know you've got a lot more films being made, which is great. Um, the percentages of good and bad are probably the same. You, know, you probably get 20% great stuff, 20% um, pretty good stuff, and you've probably got 20% which is. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody will roll up with a, a laptop and a hard drive, and this, this time we did it. We did it. You, you at university here. Number of rooms. They've already, they've already got digital projectors in because they're, they're teaching rooms. Yeah. So two of the people in four or five rooms doing pre-selection. Very very easy to do. I'm a huge advocate uh, for the whole digital revolution because the tools are so accessible. Our mobile phone. Video cameras, laptop, edit software. Well, I think Avid, you can now get Avid for your iPad for three quid. When Avid came out, it was originally like 30 grand, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no excuse. Yeah. You know, all those tools are out there. In a way, it's quite scary. Oh, God, I should be doing this, you know, can I? But also, what we've seen, and I remember we brought Terry Gilliam to help us uh, on the jury of Depict a few years ago, and it's sort of when this sort of digital thing was just beginning to cut in. And there were some extraordinary pieces being put together, blends of live action graphics put together you know, in the early days. But my God, the way people are just using these tools. I say these, this is probably eight or nine years ago. These days, you know, the tools are so, so accessible. And, and so it then comes down to storytelling and character and stuff. So, uh, no, I think it's been massively beneficial. Massively. At this point of the interview, we were noticing that the bar noise was getting a little uh, overwhelming. Fortunately, the artistic director of the festival, uh, Mark Cosgrove, was on hand and he was able to usher us into a more uh, secluded area. So here's the less noisy second part of the David Sproxton interview. You were involved in this uh, panel discussion thing last night. Yes, that's fine. That. Yes. That was good. Uh, what was nice, it was fairly spontaneous. We hadn't done a, a lot of, you know, when you vaguely a bit of kind of... Bit of chronology there. Yeah. So it was actually very comfortable. The Q&A was good. Did the three of you do those types of events together? No, in fact, I think, I think that's only the second time that we've done that sort of thing together as, as, a, as a threesome. We did a, a thing, I think it was a Guardian lecture many years ago on the South Bank, uh -huh. where we were actually interviewed by the BBC producer Colin Rose, who used to be one of the animation department of the BBC here. If you've got a film coming out, there might be a little bit of publicity, but generally it'll be the sort of directors that do all that. I mean, whether it was Nick on Curse the Wet Rabbit or Pete on Pirates, you know, huge kind of what they call press junkets, you know, mm -hmm. lots of journalists. But we haven't done a, a sort of three-way thing like that for, for some time. It was certainly a big draw. I mean, it was absolutely yeah, jam-packed. Yeah. Um, so nowadays within Arbonne, compared to sort of the way things were when you were just sort of starting out, how would you say that your respective roles have like changed the most? Uh, well, when we started out, there was just the two of us. So I was doing 
as it were, the production work, you no know, camera work. We, we, we wrote stuff together uh, more, and, and more, Pete was always the more creative one. Uh, he's the more artistically gifted, that's for sure. And that's why I think it's quite a complementary partnership, because I could do the sort of logistical, practical production side, and my background's really photography and lighting, and I did a lot of, lot of DOB work for many years. Uh, and Pete was much more in you know, story, character, and the animation side. So we're complementary from that point of view. I'm not so involved on a hands-on production basis these days. There's a kind of kind of managerial role because we've got various and lots of departments and things. I'm making sure that actually things get linked up quite well is part of my role. When it comes to uh, certainly the bigger things like you know, the, the feature film scripts and stuff, I'll be part of the team which will be, be analysing is the script working, you know, yeah. and, and the edit. And then I, I kind of come in at the start of well, the development process and, and the key moments, the key milestones in the development process, story reels, it's editorial. Then once it goes into production, there's a great team that do that stuff. And, you know, it's great to see it, fantastic. But I tend not to get involved in on a day-to-day basis these days. I used to be unbelievably involved in all that stuff. But as you get more and more stuff running up and running, you, you kind of step back a bit. It's a shame, actually. Big mistake. Because mm. I enjoyed it. But then, on, like on a future film, when we get into editing and post-production I kind of cut back in again to help just steer that through on, on the more day-to-day TV stuff these processes kind of run themselves because again there's a lot of stuff going through they're very very busy at the moment we're putting the last series of Sean the Sheep which we just finished shooting uh, 20 you know uh, 8 minute episodes put through post so will that be the last ever series? no we are we're planning to do uh, we'd like to do aim to do 20 episodes a year yeah. Sean just keep it rolling you know the big debate is how many do you need to make? And you know, our, our buyers, our television stations around the world saying, you know, we'll take as much as you can make. Oh, you know, we'd love to have 20 episodes a year, which is fantastic. Mm. Bigger question is, at what point do we run out of stories? You know? yeah. um, but, the, but currently it's very, very popular and there's a lot of stuff we can do with them. They're mm. great characters. Excellent. Certainly mm. very popular in Germany. Almost more than, well, I think probably more than Bristol. Yes, it is. Um, yeah. Like this, just yeah. full of Sean Bashat that's, that's merchandise. Right. That's right. No, it's huge. And I think part of that is they're on, they're on like the equivalent of BBC One, WDR, mm-hmm. key partner, and they're on really the main television station, as opposed to here, where they're on CBBC. Yeah. When the BBC just decided to take its children's television off BBC One, mm. you sort of, I mean, the kids probably find it because they'll just search through, you know, to find the stuff they want to watch. But you kind of lose the adult visibility. And if you look at where the, the, those characters are strong, some countries have followed the BBC's form and, and set up digital kids' channels, and some haven't. And Germany, well, it does have kids' channels. They put Sean Sheep originally on to in a programme that's a bit like Blue Peter, you know, which is still on the main channel. Very big family or children's show. It's been running for years. Mm-hmm. And it sat in there, and that got great visibility very, very quickly. Yeah. It's huge in Germany, absolutely massive. And we're always wondering, kind of, why is that? So part of it's that, and part of it, I think they love the sense of humour. Yeah. And I think Germany's probably more rural than we might give credence for. You know, it's got big cities, but all of the population still live, live in smaller towns mm. in the countryside, so perhaps it relates better to them. I think certainly from my perspective, being someone who, as a child, you know, other than sort of what you would see on TV, the walls mm. of and things like that, and the, the strong elements of those early short films and, and specials were what you would do with silent comedy and physical yeah. comedy. And I think yeah. 
probably of, of all the sort of output that's coming from Armin at the moment, it's the most that retains that shoulder yeah. sheet. Yeah. Because um, they don't really talk to each other. It's all sort of the, yeah. the art of physical yeah. comedy. Yeah. Whereas the films at the moment are quite dialogue driven yeah. or the yes. commercial work. Or yes. Whatever. Yes. So I think there's a kind of nostalgic charm as well. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think if you talk to Golly about it, which is Starzak, who's sort of the man behind it, the classic silence. Buster mm. Keaton, Lowell and Hardy. In fact, there's a scene, there's an episode set on a boat, which is a, a homage to quite a well-known uh, Lowell and Hardy film, where they're trying to, get, trying to get the boat done up and launched and all that, and just the gangs you can have around masts and buckets and sails, you know, and it's sort of that sort of arena. And that stuff doesn't age, you know, good mm. silent comedy. And you're right, it's sort of at the heart. I mean, the, the Wallace and Gromit films are pretty silent comedy. There's not a lot of dialogue in them. Pirates is a lot more dialogue driven, yeah. uh, but we we basically we do love doing good silent sort of silent style films so that you're telling the the story through actions rather than rather than words. Yeah, that's kind of at the heart of it. You know, Morph pretty well did that. Yeah, um, two or three other characters and, and certainly Sean the Shoes. And it was a challenge because you know if you put a voiceover in, it tends to skew it very young, mm-hmm. unless it's a slight tongue in cheek voiceover. And I think that's one reason why sold very well but the countries that it's playing in as in Germany they put their own title card on and it looks like it's made in Germany right. you aren't both thinking anything yeah. it could well have been made in Germany in fact in many ways you kind of take more ownership of it because of that I think there's usually a kind of air of secrecy around projects that are in development is there any stuff that's coming up that a, you can talk about, and B, you're excited about? We're aiming to do a Sean Sheet movie, which, is, uh-huh. which I think is probably in the air. The feature stuff's tricky because, I mean, Nick's developing a non-Wallace and Gromit movie, uh-huh. and we talked last night about this parallel thinking that goes on, you know, the ants bugs life syndrome, yeah. and there's a certain amount of collusion between the studios. But because the process takes so long, and if you're at the early stages... You don't really want to leak out what the idea is because if it's a good idea, some say actually we can get this idea out quicker than they okay. can. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of sort of industrial confidentiality, really, mm-hmm. and that's really what it is. Because actually, if a space similar idea does happen, both studios will have spent a lot of money on it. One of them may lose. Yeah. I think with the, in the Ants and the Bugs Life, there was a race, and DreamWorks said we've got to get Ants out before Bugs Life, otherwise we've just been burned out of the water. Yeah. It's a bit crazy, but that sort of thing happens because there's quite a lot of stake. You know, if they've invested, I don't know, $100 million in a movie and it's pipped to the post and people say, oh, God, we've just seen an insect movie. Why would you want to see another one? We got a wall at work with a list of what is in development at the studios. You broadly know, not every fine detail, but you can see pretty well over the next so many years what is coming through just through the networks that our guys have. Mm-hmm. And you say, I've got this idea. Oh, I wouldn't do it because actually they're doing one very similar to that. So let's think again. Just make sure that you, you're not developing an idea in an absolute parallel track. You tend not to speak too loudly about it because... And we can't scale up. You know, with particular stop frame, it's really hard to accelerate that process. I mean, we did scale up quite a lot for Pirates. Mm-hmm. It's a very ambitious film. We don't have a big CGI pipeline, so you'd have to kind of, you know, you'd buy that in, in a way, like we did with After Christmas. But even so, there's a limit that you hit if you really, really want to accelerate it. And I mean, at DreamWorks, where they have probably three films in production at any one time now at various stages, they will take people off a show and put them on another show to kind of accelerate that. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. They've got the resources to move people around. You know, DreamWorks is the best part of, I think, 1,500 people now. It's pretty big. It's just the same with Pixar. They, they will move people around a bit uh, if there are problems that are hit or they want to accelerate something. Yeah. Uh, we just don't have that resource. 
and it's hard to do in the stop frame world because actually whereas you can sort of cut and paste or copy characters in CG very easily with us we'd have to build them and that's an expensive process and time consuming whereas because CG figure right let's take that put it on these machines yeah. and you can, you can animate the character you know mm. it's much it's much easier to s- scale up quite rapidly mm-hmm. uh, if you've got the infrastructure in place yeah, yeah. Cool. are there any uh, events upcoming for the rest of the festival that you're looking forward to um, yeah Jeremy Thomas I'd like to see him uh, Sam Fell who has just finished Power Norman yeah. which I'd like to see and like to see him see what he's learned over the last few years since he, since he worked with us on uh, well flushed away really the programme's really rich I mean it's huge yeah. as I say it's hard to get to see everything um, I'll try and get to see the, the best of the fest mm-hmm. and uh, being on the board you know, we still have access to all, to all the hard drives so you, know, you, can, you can kind of select stuff uh, Pete Pete Lord he's actually on the jury on the animation jury so he'll see quite a lot of films and get, get his recommendation. Have you been on the jury in the past? I've been on the depict jury for a, right. a number of years. I enjoy that. Um, I've not been on the other juries and of course, you know, now that Peter finished Pirates, suddenly he was kind of available and he's been on various other international film festival juries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, the Annecy jury. I was on the Annecy student film jury a couple of years ago, which is good fun with Will Vinton and... Um, uh, lovely guy's name I've just forgotten who directed directed the uh, Curious George and these Warner Brothers shorts it's Matthew Callahan. yes that's yeah. right Matt Callahan. absolutely, um, absolutely well done we interviewed him recently yeah was, uh, very nice guy and that was good fun seeing student work from around the world you mentioned last night you're quite a big fan of Depict yes I think because it comes down to the writing it's a bit like that log line you know you should be able to tell a, uh, you know, a, a good little one line story in that 90 seconds or, or do a gag and the best of them are really quite amazing this year they're quite a lot of fairly abstract films non-narrative films in this year's selection it's a bit like a good TV commercial it's amazing if you put your mind to a story that you can tell in 30 seconds or a minute yeah. in a TV commercial and 90 seconds actually is quite a good length and it's doable one of the things I said last night, don't, you know, start doing Ben-Hur as a student film, you'll never get there. Yeah. Just do something that's doable, deliver something that's complete, even if it's really quite short. Yeah. And my take would be do lots of them. Don't do one sort of ten-minute film, do five or six or one-minute films around different subjects just to show the range and actually to get too locked into one single idea. Learn to be more flexible and, and learn from that film to the next and the next. They're great practice ground. They're great in their own right, and in this digital age, you know, with you know, YouTube films being 10-minute slugs or less, and the way that people graze on YouTube, you know, yeah. uh, you can have quite a lot of fun in two or three minutes. So. It's a good starting off point, I think. Yeah. And probably for a lot of like, people who are just finishing their degrees, yes. it's that sort of time of year. Yes. Um, I think you kind of have to strike while you, there's still that impulse. Yes. You know, yes. After you've sort of recovered from the burnout of the actual student film, to just sort of get your teeth sunk yeah, into the right. ground. That's right. And the best ones, I mean, there's a lovely film, black and white live action film called Cheval 2.1, mm-hmm. which actually was made by, actually by Productions. It looks like a sort of French existential film. It's very funny, beautifully executed. Isn't it? And we had a, you know, the, the depict loving copy, as we do every year, a little succession. And nearly all the films are just shot in a day. They're often written over two or three days. And there's one lovely little film, very curious piece, and it was a guy, God, he was you know, 14 or 15 years old. He'd clocked the competition quite late. He's oh my God, closing date's Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Monday. <laughs> and he just sort of looked at his bedroom and said, uh, I'll do a film of what I've got here. And he just shot stuff that day in his bedroom, just using stuff he got in his bedroom. 
there was there was a narrative to it. I said, God, this really well thought out. It was all I wouldn't say it was random, but he just said, actually, it's a story I can tell. Yeah. Like, and I thought that was great. It just really fired him up. And generally, I'd say they're pretty well shot in a day. And oddly enough, actually, this year, out of the fifteen shortlisted entries, I think a bulk of them are animation for whatever reason. Uh, and you often find that those ones tend to be stronger because obviously in animation you can tell, can do a good gang, and you, you can cut the chase as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that short form, obviously people, you know, animators seem to love that, that short form. I think it's great, I think it's a lovely competition, I think it's terrific. Yeah. Um, very useful, I wish, in a way, and it has been those micro competitions which you now get, and more colleges are saying, actually let's do these, something of that length, do more and more very short pieces. I think also because we were learning, we did a lot of, we still do a lot of commercials, but in our early days when we got into doing commercials, you learned actually how every frame counts. You know, a 30 second commercial is 750 frames. That's what it is. It's not 749 or 751. It is 750 frames. And they are beautiful distillations of stories. And the best, you know, some of the best depict ones, you think actually you could build that into a feature film. You could build that idea, which is where that kind of log line yeah. thing comes in, actually you distill it right down to its essence. You could kind of pull it up. So it's a good exercise. I think quite a lot of the films I've seen here at the Watershed like have, have had those sort of origins, like they've come from yeah. something very short. Yes, or, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a great sort of exercise, yeah. I guess, to kind of prove a director's chops or a writer's yeah. chops. Or, you know. That's right, yeah. that's right. Well, this has been an uh, absolute Good. pleasure. Thanks very much for talking to me. Good. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the film. Yes, thank you. And, uh, thank you very much. Very much, Dave. I'll see you around. That was David Sproxton, one of the three Ardman lads. All three of them had a uh, on-stage panel discussion interview type thing. It was a big gala event, one of the biggest uh, draws of the festival. In fact, every night they had these gala sort of things that close out the evening. And so they're always quite popular, quite well attended. As we sort of discussed just then, I mean, it is sort of amazing that, you know, the three of them don't do these public appearances so often, you know. It's quite a rare thing, which I guess is why it was such a big draw, obviously. Peter Lord certainly, you know, uh, shows up from time to time. I've seen a few solo talks by David. And uh, I've seen Nick Park, I think, only one other time. There was at, like, a writing festival at a little cafe in Stokescroft, and it was quite nice. It wasn't a well-publicized event, but it was an interesting sort of thing. It certainly doesn't seem like they're always, you know, on the sort of whirlwind press junket type thing for whatever project is going on. Obviously, something like Pirates, because it's a big deal, is going to have a push. Um, so Peter Lord was was very visible earlier in the year, but yeah, to have the three of them on stage was kind of cool. It was it was nice to sort of see, and you know, it was well uh, organized. The questions were interesting. Learned all sorts of stuff that I didn't know before, and uh, opened it up as they do to the audience. That's when things kind of you know slowed down a notch. <laughs> it was always a risk you take. Yeah, um, but, especially uh, that time of the evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was the great thing about like being a good on stage presence. No matter what is put to them, they can then spin it to an interesting answer mm-hmm. or have it, you know. Um, and talking about the nature of Ardman animations, people kind of think that it's it's just the one guy who does it all. So they think, oh, Wallace and Gromit is the same thing as Pirates and Sean the Sheep. And, you know, so they, you know, they don't break it down to the individual, you know, people. So some guy comes in who works from Ardman, so they think it's it's got to be Nick Park or whoever, you know. And I think that's sort of the case with, with you know, a lot of operations. For example, and this is a, a slightly tenuous analogy, but there were plenty of people who, when Squiggly first started, thought that I ran the show just because I was the person posting up all the articles I was putting up. And I, I still get emails to steve at squiggly.co.uk uh-huh. 
saying hi Ben <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you find that as well like when when you started writing like people thought that maybe squiggly was you yes you know kind yeah. of thing that was a great night. The next night was the Paranorman screening, which you were there, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it, yeah. And uh, Sam Fell was there, one of the two directors. And there's a video interview you did with him and the other director, right? Yes, yeah. uh, Sam Chris. Fell and Chris Butler. Yeah. Um, there's a video interview on the Squiggly website. Very enjoyable yeah. meeting them two guys. Very interesting, very engaging guys. I found him very engaging at the talk as well. Yeah. It was nice to see the film also. Well, the film, and we will talk more about Paranorman in general uh, next podcast. Um but uh, it went down really, really well. And I'm not sure maybe if like a lot of people had had a few, you know, that helped. I was, you know, I'm going to say this. I was underwhelmed when I saw the trailer. And I think it's better to have it this way around when they don't cram the trailer full of all the good jokes. Mm-hmm. And then when you see the film, it's like, well, wow, that's really funny. Yeah. And I, was, I was really pleasantly surprised by what I thought could have dangerous. The thing is like, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to take the elements of what made the film funny and put them into a trailer that really the focus needs to be on the story because otherwise you wouldn't really know what the hell was going on. So they went with the, the trailer that describes the story rather than the trailer that just says, hey, this movie is hilarious. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's... So it may have not been the best move on the people who put together the trailers part in terms of getting bums on seats, but you know, like I say, it's it's much better to, to go into a movie and be more satisfied than you thought you would be. Oh, yeah, it's a very um, rewarding film in that respect to watch. All that being said, um, <laughs> I'm not going to let this slide because it's been over a week and I think I still have brain damage. Worst audio ever in a cinema-going experience for the yeah. first 10 minutes. It was just a comedy of errors where you either it was too quiet or... And you could hear, like, someone was futzing around to try and, like, fix it, because you can eat that sort of identifiable, like, Jack's going in and out of things sound. Yeah, the feedback not was... The, oh, yeah, that was my favourite part. Yeah. 10 to 20 seconds of just, like, tinnitus noise. Yeah. Good time. And uh, also, in the you notice the middle of the screen was a little uh, fuzzy as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were parts of it where it kind of looked like they'd mixed up the, the reel with, like, the 3D reel. Mm. You know, when it sort of looks like it's 3D but all fuzzy, you know? It, it was almost at certain points, and I don't want to dwell on, on you know, the, the the one mistake that I certainly saw. Was, it was like watching the pirate DVD, where, uh, you know, like a Oh, yeah, 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 when version. someone's just kind of, yeah. The sounds rubbish. The It really didn't do it any favours. However, you know, it didn't diminish the enjoyment yeah. of the film. Well, 90, it did, but, you know, it didn't, you know, it was quite still an enjoyable film. I th- I'd say 90% of it was ironed out. Hmm. within the first 10 minutes but it was that kind of thing and the other thing was like well it's 10 minutes of exposition about uh, that was kind of already covered pretty much from the get-go and in the trailers and stuff it's like Achilles' ghosts yeah that's pretty much all you need to know so yeah uh it didn't it didn't completely ruin the film um and like i said got a great reaction in spite of you know unplanned technical difficulties uh, Sam was very gracious about the whole thing because I know I'd be incandescent with rage mm. if you know I was in a, a film. I like I get annoyed when like I'm at a film festival and they show my film in the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> and I was just like mother, <laughs> how dare you manipulate my art that I'm bringing to the world by you know my cartoon about Santa and his underpants. <laughs> the cultural merit of it is at stake. Um, You'd have hated seeing it projected onto a bedsheet in Annecy then. (laughs) (laughs) I found that a very uh, enjoyable and engaging talk. And like we say, we'll play the interview in full, Mm -hmm. our interview with Sam Fell and Chris Butler on the next uh, Squiggly podcast. Yes. 
It's going to be a very spooky podcast. It is, by yes. All, by all accounts, so look forward to that. Other sort of stuff going on at the festival, like um, mini sort of workshops, uh, retrospective screenings. One of my favorites, and this is a little uh, uh, annoying because it was, although it turned out to be quite well attended and it went down really well, was uh, Fraser McLean, who was interviewed, I think, in the first two podcasts we cut it into, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, about his book, uh, Setting the Scene. And uh, I hadn't met him, I hadn't uh, uh, seen him sort of in action, and he gives what I think is a kind of touring uh, talk about A, the book, but B, the subject matter in general. It's less a sort of case of him like saying, buy my book. It's more a case of, of him sort of sharing what it was that inspired him to write it, yeah. which is the art of layout, which he you know um, talks in, in great depth about in those two interviews. And to be honest, he was the best, like, public speaker of all the people who talked. He was just really animated, really uh, uh, high energy, self-effacing. I mean, the only thing was like, he's one of those people who like, you know, when he's saying stuff like really, really riveting and you're just sort of sitting there with your chin on your hand kind of going, oh, and he's sort of saying, no, I won't keep boring you with this. It's like, no, no, keep boring us with this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're actually interesting. And, it, and this is the other thing, for the students or, or young animators, all with notebooks, like scribbling mm-hmm. and You'll hear that maybe like when you go to one of these types of talks or seminars, you'll hear that for the first few minutes and then they just give up, you know, and they just sort of sit there. But they were like scribbling all the little notes and names and stuff he was bringing up, references, stuff like that. Yeah. And he machine guns them out there. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's all gold. It's fantastic. Yeah. It, he's, he's such a such a great speaker. And the yeah. great like examples that he was able to play from stuff he's worked on and things like that. And yeah. uh, presumably you've seen like an equivalent talk at another festival I've seen it it twice I think it should have had more uh, promotion to be honest because it was one of the better yes yeah and I I would wholeheartedly agree there I do think that that Fraser's work if you do see the the name Fraser McLean in any festival programme then definitely seek it out for those who are not familiar with him so yeah there are a whole bunch of other sort of supplemental events like that one other evening type things like uh, uh, you know Random Acts this Channel 4 thing that you know has been commissioning new animation which is great because that's it's it sort of reminds us of the heyday of Channel 4 commissioning animation albeit at significantly reduced production costs but you know the spirit is there industry type talks you know things about uh, the nature of co-production which was sort of interesting a little out of my wheelhouse for the time being but good stuff for future reference and one of the jury members who was the sort of uh, visiting I guess guest of honor was uh, Paul Bush one of the more avant-garde of center uh, animators out there and I uh, got to talk to him uh, as he sort of mentions himself he's kind of an accidental animator someone who kind of uh, uh, fell into an animation career perhaps without planning to or realizing it. And an interesting batch of films he's done. He's done a lot over, I think, a nearly 30-year career. A lot of live-action stuff that then kind of uh, interweaves with animation processes. Some interesting takes on techniques like uh, his approach to uh, scratching on film. Pixelation experiments are a little outside of the box. He did a talk at another festival a few years ago. Hmm. My favorite film of his is While Darwin Sleeps. Yeah. I just like the use of pixelation and the insects and stuff is pretty cool yeah so a whole series of different species of, of insects um, kind of uh, morphing sequ- yeah. Sort of, yeah yeah the way it's sort of arranged it's, mm. it's like one sort of entity that's kind of evolving and being manipulated and that kind of thing and that kind of it goes right hand in hand with what I was saying before about like appealing abstract animation you know the kind that you can just sort of sit there and oh that's nice mm. without being just like you know a shape flitting across the screen or whatever it actually has something where 
you think about it a little you know you, th- you can kind of let your mind wander or you can you can if you like read symbolism into it whether or not it's, it's sort of part of the artistic intent it's engrossing yeah I really like uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde which is a uh, he's used it a couple of times but it's a particular sort of use of, of pixelation where the actor or the performer alternates frame by frame hmm. uh, but they're performing hmm. the same thing yeah and that's a great effect so here's me and Paul Bush at Encounters you're here for Encounters for a few reasons. You're part of the jury, yes? And you're doing a talk tomorrow, like a retrospective, uh, on your own personal work and incorporating that into a, is it like a sort of masterclass or seminar afterwards? It's going to be, um, I think, about an hour and a half program of films, short films, commercials, but all my independent work, apart mm. from a few commercials. Right. All animated. Afterwards, Mark Cosgrove is going to have a kind of in conversation with me. Mm-hmm. You know, this I like the slightly pretentious name Masterclass, <laughs> um, but it will be. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll talk about how the films will be made. People can ask questions. It depends on the audience. Actually, it's quite interesting if there's an animation audience. Um, I'll talk more technically. Yeah. But sometimes people are more interested in how the films are made and sometimes people are more interested in why they're made. Mm. And sometimes people are just interested in how you've got the bloody money. <laughs> well, especially <laughs> <nowadays. laughs> Where are you teaching? Is it the NFTS? Uh, pri- well, in the UK, the NFTS. Mm-hmm. And so I've actually got a stake with quite a lot of the films in competition, but I won't mm. um, be... I'd be exercise. I'd be I'd be, be admitting uh, because I work with the second years on the graduation films, uh-huh. and it is a bit difficult for me to see them clearly now. Right. Yeah. And I teach also in Switzerland at an art school. I run a workshop every year, and I also teach in Italy, mm-hmm. an animation course. I visit three times a year. Cool. Yeah, the NFTS really does have a very strong. Output. I think the NFTS has slowly, well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily improved. We're very, very dependent on the number of applicants we get, mm-hmm. uh, the, the quality of the applicants we get. Obviously, if we have good applicants, we hope they go on and make fantastic films. If we have reasonable people who work well, because it's teamwork, so you don't have to be absolutely brilliant, but you can be a good director by being a team player. Mm. And these people, if they're good team players, they will make good films. But you know, if we don't, if we get someone who's a bit weak, you know, you, there's nothing you can do. So yeah. we are, like all schools, we're dependent on getting a good quality of applicants. And that has improved, I would say, mm. recently. And we also have, we have take eight students a year, which is still a small number, but it yeah. used to be six. Right. So of course with eight students a year, we're going to get more good films. Yeah. And after all, people don't see the bad films. No. But I think the standard is high. It's a fantastic school. Yeah. If you want to be in a film school. I'm not saying it's the best animation course, because obviously the Royal College has got a really good course. Right. The National Film School, if you want to work with in a team with all the disciplines, cinematography, editor, sound and music, um, producer. It's a great place also for students to network, which helps them with jobs afterwards. Yeah. I guess getting a sense of how the sort of pipeline of things works and interaction between you know, other areas of the filmmaking process, which I think is the part of the whole thing where other graduates you know, who've just done one particular you know, area kind of throws them a bit. 
I mean, I do like a lot of the work, you know, that, that come from schools which are more like art schools, MA courses that are more like art schools, like the Royal College, because you can have a kind of lightness and individuality of touch mm-hmm. that's quite difficult at the National Film School because you work with a big team and everyone graduates on the work of the directors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't suddenly turn around to the composer and say, I don't want music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could, but it's never happened. <laughs> yeah. In fact, one of the one of the one, one graduation films this year, which is a kind of genre sci-fi comedy film, is going to have a fifty-piece orchestra oh. to play the score. Um, so the films are big films, but it does help people because they know all our students, or nearly all our students, are people who work well with mm. other people. And that helps them to get jobs afterwards, of course. Yeah. Most people don't leave National Film School and become directors, you know, straight away. Yeah. But most people get work. And, of course, they tend to get work in companies that have an eye to kind of nurturing them and keeping them on the books, you know, yeah. hoping that they will fully mature as directors. And a fair number, you know, are directing films. I mean, there's Joseph Pierce has got a film. He's made two or three films. There's a film in competition here that he's made since leaving the school, mm-hmm. for instance. Going to uh, your work, um, and you've been active for quite a while now, sort of since the early 80s, right? It feels a long time, but I came to animation in the 90s as a result of Animate funding, uh-huh. because before that I was doing much more experimental live-action films. Yeah. Um, I mean, they didn't really contain single-frame elements, but they were very visually experimental. Mm-hmm. And it, the, I think the climate for those films isn't very good in the UK, but the climate for experimentation in animation has been and still is good. So somehow I managed, almost by chance, by virtue of one film, to find a kind of niche where I could work and do the films that I wanted to make. And, you know, I was embraced by the animation community, which I'm always slightly touched about, because I'm (laughs) often quite rude about their you know, <laughs> animation. When people manage to get it to work, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. What was the device that inspired that shift then, that thing you sort of came across? Well, desperation is the simple word. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not saying that would have happened, but I, I remember thinking, I'm not going, this is my last film I'm going to make. And I'm going to make a film by working directly into the film surface because it doesn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. I've just spent before I've been spending quite a lot of money earning and then spending a lot of money on productions that involved technical crew and actors and so on. Yeah. So it's, this was going to be a little film and it was based on this idea of um, using woodblock engravings and scratching on top of them, filming them and then scratching on top of them. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple kind of conceptual idea of kind of animating engravings yeah. by engraving on film. And by virtue of doing this, you could kind of tell a story. It's got a little of a look of rotoscoping, but it isn't rotoscoping. Mm. But it, because it uses photographic material underneath, it has... It's sort of shows the, Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's very interesting about what rotoscoping, if we talk about that, which is um, obviously... It's, borrow, it's animation which borrows the movement of cinematography. And it's so interesting to see the difference between those two elements in the same film. Yeah. And uh, because you realise what a language animation is, that the minute you see rotoscoping, it stands out. Absolutely, yeah. And the classic example is the early Disney films, the Disney like rotoscope. Yeah, they, they rotoscoped Seeking Beauty, I think yeah. the two 
hero and heroine are rotoscoped and everyone else is, is drawn a different way and you see this dream the movement as shown in cinematography becomes kind of like dreamlike yeah. feeling and the animation feels real because you're in an animated world mm-hmm. these people move through like their feet don't touch the ground yeah. which is a technical problem <laughs> it is something that I think they would use you sparingly but every once in a while and it is very sort of instantly kind of identifiable and quite effective when used right but then when sort of misused it kind of takes you out of it a bit um, when it really stands out so you either do that kind of deliberately like like you know Disney did if there's a whole film like it with Joe like Joe Pierce's stuff yeah you buy into that world mm-hmm. I and mean, that's a fascinating thing working with animation as a teacher I and mean, it's not so relevant with my own work but as a teacher the kind of rules of what's believable is completely different in animation. Yeah. And it's fascinating actually in film school because I'm often working with editors, uh, for instance, who are much more accustomed to working with live action. And they find it very difficult to kind of to see what is believable in an animation world. Mm-hmm. But once you build that world, once you do the backgrounds and you have these characters, everything stems from that. And although you can't break your own rules, you're in a completely different world. Yeah. You can invent the rules, make them clear, and they can have no relationship or very sh- tiny relationship to the real world. Yeah. And therefore, you know, events like coincidences you wouldn't accept in a, in a live-action movie. You know, can have that. You know, quite extraordinary coincidences can happen in, mm. in animation. It's completely believable and plausible to an audience. Yeah, yeah. One of the techniques that you use quite a lot is the sort of taking the film and scratching directly onto it and the effect from that. Is, can you sort of further elaborate on, on what it is about that particular look that kind of carries the message that you want to sort of send out? Or Because I, I've never trained as an animator, I made a film this way and I was quite prepared just to make one film that way. I think one of the things that really interests me, and it's true of almost all my work that I do, is that I'm really in love with the photographic image, not the graphic image. And so although these films look very graphic, they're all worked on top of photographic images. Yeah. So I have this very, kind of very close relationship to a photographic image. There's all sorts of things about the photographic image, I think, that fascinate me. Some of the qualities of my film because it's shot that way and then animated afterwards. And although it looks very graphic, you know, the framing is entirely photographic. Mm -hmm. I mean, graphic images tend to use the edges of the frame in a different way because they're drawn, as it were, on a piece of paper. But photography picks out a little frame out of the whole world. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the edges are completely different because the edges of a photographic frame are kind of arbitrary. But in a graphic frame, they're not because you know, an artist has drawn them or, or left them blank. I made one immediately after making it, and it was the first film that I was actually funded completely to make. I proposed to do another one using the same technique but a totally different subject and style and feel, almost as a challenge to show that I could use the same technique in a different mood. Mm-hmm. And I made that film, and then I made two more in that style and a commercial, and then I stopped and right. do something completely different, which is pixelation, mm. basically, stop frame moving of objects and people. Yeah. And although when I switched to that, it seemed quite a bold move, because I've just become known as the guy who scraps films. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely changed into this area that had always interested me. 
because of the photographic world. Yeah. yeah. It's like making live action films. I'm using the same material, the same yeah. equipment, and everything, but I'm manipulating every single frame. Mm. It's quite a, an original approach within pixelation, the sort of alternating like between performers, like in particular the Jekyll and Hyde film, that sort of frame by yeah. frame effect where it just goes from a different actor and then. Well, I'm glad you say that because, of course, it's fanta been fantastically copied now. And it's, mm. uh, I've seen some, <laughs> I've sometimes watched um, two adverts and one advertising break using that technique. Mm -hmm. And um, my children tease me because for years I used to say, yeah, they've copied me. So now my children, whenever a commercial comes on, even if it's not connected with me at all, <laughs> even if it's CG, they'll say, I bet they copy that from you, Dad, they say sarcastically. <laughs> It was one of those funny things that I always thought people would copy the scratch technique because right. it's very graphically strong, and no one ever copied that. I and mean, of course, people have made scratch films, but no one's copied using this kind of system of photographic underneath and then scratching on top. Mm. But the um, pixelations were immediately copied. Yeah. First, the, the ones I did with objects where I kept them in the same place, and then later the um, changing actors frame by frame. You know, nice stuff, some really nice commercials. I would have liked to have made some myself, but the fact is, yeah. it doesn't quite go like that. I think there's a, a tier of advertising development where their creative process is just seeing something somewhere and thinking to themselves, oh, I'm having an idea right now. <laughs> like it's, it's Well, yeah, they do. I mean, that's their, their job is to go around effectively you know, looking at work and, yeah. you know, and they do, do look at a lot of students' work and a lot of the more experimental work and the kind of experimental programmes like 1.0 and they, they effectively, yes, as it were, steal ideas, they borrow images to sell products. Unfortunately, they often get directors they know, not the directors who've originated the technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the techniques, these two techniques, conceptually, they were quite original, but they're really, really easy to do. There's no secret. And that's the fun of watching them, is that they're kind of, they appear clever, but, you know, anyone Simple can idea. do that. Yeah. So there was no reason to ask me. On the other hand, the first commercial I did, these creatives came up very excited with, you know, one of the most iconic films of experimental abstract animation, and that's... Um, Norman McLaren's The Gone Dull Care uh -huh. and they said look at this like, they, like you know, it's a film every animation student knows and they said um, you know, we feel we can you know, sell this store that's selling paint products and paint finishes and lifestyle store by um, using painting directly on film but they talk like you know no one, no one's seen this movie before and then the worst thing because and I got the job to do it which was great and really good fun uh -huh. copying Len Lai and McLaren uh -huh. but um, so you know I've copied other people uh, but um, the worst thing is they're going to use the same music. I don't know. Don't <laughs> use Oscar Peterson. They did use Oscar Peterson, luckily not the same track. Mm. But it's such a you know rip off. I'm showing it here. There. Uh huh. <laughs> it's kind of the borderline between rip off and homage. Like where yeah, they, homage. I guess maybe they homage. Yeah. <laughs> covering their bases, you know, by doing by taking that extra step by actually adding the, the same composer for the music is then they could say, you know, well actually this was But this I, think, I think it's ignorance and I think yeah. it's as you say, somehow, you know, for them to see something mm. is for them they, they don't see it as the product of someone else's. Yeah. If they see something on the screen, it's almost a product of their own idea. 
the copyright protects ideas. Mm. Uh, sorry, copyright doesn't protect ideas, copyright protects images. Mm. So if someone nicks some stuff, you've got recourse, and it protects, you know, you can patent equipment stuff. Mm. So I could have patented something. Mm. Um, not, I don't think in the furniture poetry style, because it doesn't use any special equipment, but I could have patented probably something in the um, scratch films, but as it happened, they uncopied them. Mm. But um, Tim McMillan, who you probably know, who uh, also did an animate film and invented the time slice camera. Mm. Uh, you know, he didn't patent it. I think it was a mistake. Uh, he came from the same kind of period as me, kind of art school, 19, late 1970s, mid-year. Right. You know, A, there didn't seem to be much money around in art in the late 1970s, and B, there's also kind of ethical feel about, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have seemed right to patent stuff. It wasn't that kind of... Maybe by the 80s, he would, he would have thought about it. Yeah. And then he, you know, he found out that um, the people who made The Matrix tried to patent bullet time, yeah. but they couldn't because he'd already uh -huh. used it. I mean, I've been often, not often, but regularly in a situation where you feel lucky if you've got a good producer, they kind of know that you're pitching for a commercial, you think mm -hmm. you're pitching on an even playing field, but actually you're not. They're just trying to find out how it's working, how, they, how you made the film. That's happened to me. Yeah. And luckily producers know, they say, well, I think they're asking too much technical mm. stuff. Let's just drop this. Well, you recently produced a sort of feature length project. While I've been making animation, I've also been making live action films, and um, which I'm not showing because I'm part of the animation section. Right. But I, I, I'm going to in the talk talk a little bit about how these, you know, how the ideas feed into each other. Uh -huh. In the talk I do afterwards, and um, I've got some work that relates to that. So I hope that conversation will draw these ideas together. Yeah. So is that predominantly live action then? It's um, not, I would say it's a documentary in essence, but the main story is fictional. Obviously you can't make a science fiction documentary, so what I wanted yeah. to do is get images, which are the most contemporary images, and the documentary stuff, live action stuff, is, is shot in cities, and the modern cities like Dubai and Beijing, and you know, they went to all the most kind of contemporary cities. And the, uh, the animation is mainly science footage, mm -hmm. so it's stuff I've collected from science and university, with permission by the way, uh -huh. um, from all over the world. So it's kind of the images that are being made of our world by scientists. So there's stuff like fluid dynamics, there's lots of stuff about crowds and, and mm. modelling cr crowds and human behaviour. So the animation in it primarily hasn't been made by me. Right. It's been collected by me. I see. So it's a kind of documentary project, but to make it watchable, there's a story which is entirely fictional. You were talking right at the beginning about sort of getting funding. You received a fellowship from Nestown? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a strange cycle, and it's true, uh, going to be true for everyone, I guess. I suppose you think, you know, the money's going to go on. I mean, I went through a period where I didn't get money to make films. I was mm -hmm. earning money and spending on films. And then I went through a period where I did get money to make films. And of course, you think that's going to go on forever. Yeah. I was making films for Channel 4, for BBC, for S4C, for the independent companies as well. And then it kind of began to dry up a little bit with the TV companies closing, beginning to close uh, their animation departments. In this is now about 2000. I did a few more things for the Arts Council, but there's a general sense 
I mean, I took it personally, but I think it was a general thing that slowly, now I can see, that because the TV channels were multiplying, mm. yeah, the money was getting smaller for each programme, and animation's always very expensive. Luckily, and I had a kind of temporary halt to this search for money, because um, I got a fellowship for Nesta, which is... National Endowment for Science, Arts and Technology. It's the first time I ever had a fellowship, and that's not connected to making a project at all. It's about personal development. Mm -hmm. And it basically was like three years or three and a half years in which I could work on projects. And in that time, I worked on developing feature films. But at the end of it, I didn't get anything into production. It was a little bit frustrating. But in a way, that was a launch pad for making this film. Mm -hmm. Because basically after that, the TV companies had all gone. um, All the money had gone. uh, All the film funding money was centralised in the Film Council. And the Film Council really weren't interested in working in animation for some reason. And not really an experimental film. So it was a very difficult period for for, um, people in animation. Mm and an experimental work. The Olympics started, so all the Arts mm-hmm. Council money went. It's a difficult period, which I hope is slightly changing now. But there's some advantage in not having money to make a project, and that is you can really choose the project you want to make. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to make this feature, and I knew I could because of its documentary. I, and, you know, in budget terms, because of digital cameras, and um, because it was primarily documentary and I was collecting material for it, not buying it, I thought I could make the film. In the sort of interim, though, between getting the fellowship and the recent film, you, had, you did get some films finished, didn't you? I made a like, few in the fellowship period, um, but I didn't get funding like for them. But I kind of, for me, it was never satisfactory and it isn't really sitting, just sitting and writing. Mm-hmm. So I uh, would be kind of working on a kind of low level of. I need to do something with my hands right. and it with images, but I primarily I was writing for those t- three years, Absolutely. writing scripts, trying to get them into production, which is, as everyone will tell you, is very frustrating. Right. Well, thank you very much okay. for talking to me. So that was Paul Bush being interviewed by Ben there, Jura and special guest at Encounters. Mm-hmm. So a few more uh, screenings outside of the uh, competition screenings, other sort of retrospectives and specialist uh, areas. I really like the children's jury. A lot of the films I'd seen already, because they'd been shown in the competition screenings, and a couple that were uh, uh, sort of unique to it. One of my favorites of the whole festival is by a guy called Will Rose, and his film is called The Goat Herder, and his lots and lots and lots of goats. And I had seen it where they did a sort of uh, outdoor cinema screening just before the festival. So I'd seen it sort of in the rather unusual context of a large sprawling park in the dead of night. It made more sense to see it in like a sort of children's film screening because there were children in the audience. And there was one little girl in particular who was very, very responsive (laughs) to this film. And it's a film about nothing really happening. It's about a guy and his goats walking and then walking and then walking and then they'd have a bit of a rest and then they, uh, sorry to spoil the ending, but they then walk back. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not, it's completely not about the story. It's just about the things that happen and the way it happens. And it's just lovely little design choices. Everything's in silhouette because it's a sort of perpetual dusk um, and then sunrise. And brilliant in terms of the timing. I think he has experience with like children's TV. According to this, he did uh, stuff for Peppa Pig and Little Kingdom. 
So, you know, I think that's sort of given him a good sense of like timing and, and layout for engaging kids' animation. The title sounds like the sort of title that would uh, engage a, a child audience as well. Yeah, well, according to this, it's, uh, and this is the, the premise here in the program, it says, Inspired by my niece seeing a goat herder in Spain, she kept chanting lots and lots and lots of goats. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, direct from the, and, and the niece actually gets a credit in the film, which is sweet. It's another one of those films, a bit like that Swiss film, that kind of makes me feel, I don't know, happy about life. Good. <laughs> I've got to stop watching these. What am I becoming? <laughs> Nexus had a retrospective. Last year they had Studio AKA. Uh, I remember that. And they, you know, they, they do good stuff, obviously. It's a very uh, dryly introduced series of stuff that they're well known for. Various kind of commercials. And, and uh, going back to what came up in the Sproxton interview, Depict is this sort of supplemental online animation and filmmaking in general competition where the twist is you have to make a film that can't last more than a minute and a half. There has been no greater source of negative energy and anger than this competition over the years. If you work in the animation industry, everyone knows someone who submitted to this competition and either gotten in and not won anything or not gotten in at all. And... Um, it's, it's because it's such a feasible thing and it's such a high profile thing that, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, I'll give it, you know, I'll give it a go. And they do. And, you know, they get inundated with, with entries. So they have to pick like 12 for a short list. And then I think three of them get, you know, some prize or other. So the odds aren't really in your favor. But uh, uh, yeah, for the last sort of six years, you know, there's always been a sort of contingent of the animation community that's been sort of annoyed with Depict and... Uh, to be honest, you know, some of the shortlists in the past have been pretty meh. This one was pretty good. And it was a lot of animation ones, which is usually it's more sort of, you know, 50-50. But animation kind of dominated Depict this year. That being said, you know, I mean, my favorite one was a live action one. And it was about a kid in the supermarket being annoying and getting his comeuppance. So sorry to betray the, the animation. <laughs> You're allowed to stray this once. Yeah, yeah, one time. The thing with stuff like Depict, and I think a lot of similar types of competitions, and really encounters in general, you make a film, and it doesn't get into the thing that you make it for necessarily, you still have a film made, you know what I mean? It's always more discouraging when people um, will do something and it doesn't get into the first thing they send it to, and then they just say, okay, I'm just not going to make a film anymore, and I'm not going to send this anywhere else. And that's the end of their animation life. Yeah. Or they're like, and it's just like, well, they were like thousands out there i think it's there's a, a line between the people that that are triers and these are the people that mm. will continue to sort of that will thrive in some way or form yeah. in the industry or the people that expect stuff to be handed to them expect that oh i'll enter my animation to a festival i'm gonna win i mean have you entered into these types of competitions in the past i mean yeah um well i mean quite a few you know you sort of play I, my sort of thing is like a sort of rule of thirds of like expect to get into a third of the festivals you apply to. The type of film I do is going to have more of a limited audience, I think, because, you know, visual thing and, the, and design style and whatnot. But uh, I don't feel bad when more festivals say no than say yes, if you know what I mean. Because then if you submit it to, you know, 100, you'll end up getting into, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50, and that's pretty good exposure. You know, it's certainly enough to get it distributed. Um, I entered a film into Depict, actually, you know, a few years ago. It didn't get in. Um, it got into the Main Encounters Festival the following year. In fact, it was last year's edition, and it was the edition where John Kay was there. 
So, you know, some consolation, consolation yeah. prize there, then. Um, a couple of friends of mine, actually. In fact, the, someone who gave me the idea was someone who had done the same thing. She did a film for Depict, and then it didn't get in, so she made it a little longer, and then sent it to Encounters the next year. Um, in the meanwhile, there's all these other international festivals and platforms that you can send this stuff to. Certainly ones that appreciate shorter films over longer films. Uh, a shorter film's going to be more likely to get thrown into a festival program, I think. Uh, especially if it's funny. My attitude was always kind of throw as much against the wall to see what sticks. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's just what marketing is in, in general. You know, I don't really have the marketing brain as far as strategy. But if I was going to say I had a strategy, it would be that. It would be, you know. It's basically the same approach I had to dating in secondary school. <laughs> because uh, I know guys who were like photogenic jock type guys who didn't get girlfriends until college. Because they just never talked to girls or they never asked girls out. I looked like a potato when I was in my late teens. <laughs> but because I asked enough people out, like, you know, occasionally some of them would say yes, and I'd, I'd, I'd have more of a kind of backdrop of, of human experience to go into university with and then not go crazy at that age when, you know, it's sort of dangerous to do that. That's sort of always been my approach in, in any sort of, especially with creative stuff, applying for jobs, whatever, is more than anything, don't get upset when people say no. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's always going to suck when it's like, you know, if it's like, uh, I don't know if it's a massive festival like Annecy or something, or a festival that you paid a lot to get into. It's it's like, well, that, you know, that would have been nice. Well, it stings a bit more, but you're not dead the next yeah. day. Um, <laughs> and uh, within a very short period of time, you're sort of back at it. You're not a failure. You've made a film. Exactly. You know, you, you know what you're doing. A few years ago, uh, I saw a talk by a producer, David Bunting, and he had this spreadsheet for his film, The Astronomer's Son. Mm -hmm. And he basically made this huge spreadsheet based on entry to festivals, yeah. whether he paid for it, etc., whether they got back in touch with him. And it was seven festivals he entered in before he even got a response. Yeah. And then it was like 20 festivals before he got screening. Yeah. And then it was like 35 before he got an award. And when he started getting awards, came tumbling in. So perseverance is yeah. it's the name of the game, isn't it? And there's certainly no rule as far as I can tell. Sometimes it's very, very random. Uh, you can actually look at, like I think, every Depict shortlist since it started. Go into some of the first couple of years of those. I'm not going to name names because A, I can't remember them, and B, I don't want to be mean. But some of those... <laughs> yeah. It's a strange thing of like, you see, you know, a film that's like, that's it, that's just... At absolute best, it's mediocre, but really, it's just terrible. It's like, I can make a terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can get, and I think, again, that's why they, they get so inundated. And then, you know, anyway, that was a kind of long, ranty tangent on the politics of, of festivals. But it, I think it's all part, it's have all a part of the festival, special, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, entering into festivals, the, the drama, the disappointment, the yeah. trepidation, it's all part of, and parcel of, of the fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many students are there that have entered into a festival or have all turned around to their friends and say, I'm entering this festival next year and then inevitably don't, you know? One of the more, like, high-profile festivals I was involved with, I don't think I actually even went to my screening. Because when I was there, it was just having such a good time with the people I was meeting and I'd go to, like, other people's screenings because, you know, I'd go to whatever screenings I had sort of time for, but if there was, like, a social thing or a networking thing, I'd usually sort of prefer that. It was right at the beginning of actually... Um, starting writing for Squiggly. It was the first interview I did with Bill Plimpton, and he was a guest there. And so that was when I was really in a kind of mode of like meeting new people and potential people to interview and that kind of thing. It was one of the, the really fun weeks of my life, because it was new. 
I mean, this, you know, Encounters Week was a fun week because I got to, you know, do so much and, you know, have the sort of press access and that kind of thing. But it's it's sort of an established part of being a Bristolian at this point. It's a strange thing of, like, your perception, perhaps, of what it's all about and what it's all leading toward can be very, very skewed by environment, what your peers think, what your peers don't think. There are two sort of crucial ingredients in me choosing animation over design, because I was doing, like, design and motion graphics for my BA and like post-production stuff, which has come in very handy in the gaps between like freelance animation work, being able to take on work that sort of relies on that sort of stuff. But obviously I want to be an animator more than that particular area. And two things kind of came up. One was that I noticed that all my MoGraph stuff would involve characters in some way, in a sort of a pictoplasma sense. And that, you know, the more I would do these, the more I would want to try and tell stories, but motion graphics isn't really the place for that. The other was around that time I started really getting into Bill Plimpton. A lot of his shorts were being shown on TV at the time, I think on like Paramount Comedy Channel, which I don't know if that still exists anymore. And I recognized him, you know, as, as being sort of an animator from my past and from the olden days of animation being on TV and then really sort of looked into what it was he did and got a few of his books and DVDs and whatnot. And there's a thing on one of his DVDs that he has since, at talks I've been to, He's said he's told the same story, and I think he mentions it in his book. The first screening he went to at a festival, a major film festival, the thing that was the best part of it all and the thing that he didn't expect at all was when the entire audience started laughing at the same time uh, in his film. And the film was Your Face, which is a very funny old one of his. And I was like, wow, this is... I want that. I want to... Yeah. So that was kind of my thing of even though I know most of the festivals I get into, if I get into festivals, I can't go to because they're, you know, international. When I do, more often than not, they get uh, a, a good response. And that's just nice to be there and to feel proud of what you've done. I will say, though, I have been to one screening because I don't want this to be the, the Ben Loves Ben <laughs> segment <laughs> of the podcast. Um, I've been to a screening where two of my films played and it was on my birthday and it was a great day overall. Barry Purvis was there and Bill Plimpton was there and it was my birthday and they were playing two of my films in the in the morning. It's like, what a great... What could th- go wrong? Well, what a great sort of way of things aligning, you know? It was like a 9am screening and my films f***ing bombed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one's did very well, but like there was just playing to crickets. So, you know, hey, that happens. And I'm sure it's a big sort of context thing. And I doubt that someone sitting on their computer watching it on Vimeo would laugh aloud at it too much. You know, it's a it's a thing of like when there are people around, you're much more inclined to laugh. Like some of the really funny films that I watched uh, at this festival, if I was just watching it on a computer screen, I'd still enjoy it and I'd still appreciate it. But I probably wouldn't like laugh out loud. You know what yeah. I mean? I think, I think a good example of that is something that we talked about in the Annecy special, A Tale of North America. I watched it again on YouTube and I enjoyed it. It was enhanced tenfold by the audience. Yeah. And the sort of the camaraderie and the sort of we're all in on this joke, we're all enjoying this style of animation and we're all in on the gag and we're, we're all we're yeah. all having fun. That lifts a film, you know. I think it explains a lot of sitcoms with studio audiences. Yeah. When you're in the moment and when you're on the set and you've got the the lights and everything and there are people all around you, obviously you're going to sort of have way more of a jubilant response. I guess that sort of brings us to 
what to a lot of people is very important is the the awards part of encounters you know it's a good way to wrap up any festival so they had the uh, the award ceremony at the watershed which they usually do and so that was of course the animation and the live action together so i saw some of the live action films for the first time or bits of them it was an interesting evening it went by quite quickly um, they only showed clips of some of the films. I got to see some of the films I really liked again, which was also cool. Anyway, like I said, there were a lot of animations in the Depict screenings. It sort of led the evening with uh, the winners of that. One was a sort of... It wasn't motion graphics, really. It was a, an illustration stream of consciousness type piece called Hey by a guy called Scott Coelho. And the main winner was uh, Mole Hill's film called The Fat Cat, which was, you know... It looked like sand animation, but I don't think it was. Mm. Oh, it says Etched in Wax. He's um, nice. he's a craftsman, certainly a craftsman, Mole Hill. Yeah, I love the narration of it. You can't really tell a story very comprehensively in 90 seconds, which is sort of the challenge mm-hmm. of, the, of Depict. It was more a kind of mini-poem type thing, you know, kind of in the vein of, of, I don't know, Robert Munch, maybe. But I like that one. I like the style of it. One of my favorite films, which I haven't mentioned so far because I was waiting to uh, bring it up uh, now, didn't win anything, but it's been it, it sort of got put through for the nomination for the cartoon door. So I think it's like gone on to the next round of possibly winning mm-hmm. the cartoon door. I kind of hope it does. I'm not sure who the other nominees are. It's an NFTS film. I've talked before about how much I love the NFTS. It's called Head Over Heels. Like, you know, a lot of films that work really, really well, they take a very simple idea and it's how they use it. It's by a guy called Timothy Reckart and it's premise... Are oh, you seen this as well? I've I seen it, yes. Did yeah. we see it at the same thing? It was before Encounters, but it was one of the... I'm pretty uh, certain. And yeah, just a really, really nice sort of idea. It's, it's a husband and wife in the autumn of their years. It improves with repeat viewing because there's all sorts of subtleties to it and nuances and observations about married life or, or the way people can kind of drive each other nuts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, without being the spin on it, is that they stick husband and wife, they live in a house. They have independent uh, fields of gravity. So the husband will be on the floor and the wife will be on what seems like the ceiling or vice versa. Never um, on the same level, basically, exactly. as they would be the... Um, and it's, it's sort of about him and her trying to meet halfway, but not really sort of managing it. It's a very striking analogy. Um, the visual stuff is great. The stop motion uh, craftsmanship is lovely. Um, the the house is sort of floating in this kind of ethereal fog limbo. So there's no sort of up or down to it, really. It's nice how the, the circumstances that the couple find themselves in is complemented beautifully by the, the world that Timothy uh, Redcart has created. They both fit together extremely well. The physics of the world uh, and the sort of the dynamic of their relationship. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful hand-in-hand portrayal. Very, very good. One of the people who was with us was a, a friend of mine who immediately when she got home showed it to her husband. And I think it, it said a lot of stuff that perhaps they were struggling to say to each other. You know what I mean? Save their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Timothy, you're a hero. So there you go. Um, yeah, they should use this film in marriage counselling, you know. <laughs> Um, no, just very, very powerful. So I'm, I'm wishing that well. So the winner of the uh, Best of British uh, Animation Award went to Ainsley Henderson for his film, I'm Tom Moody. This was a nice little film about self-confidence and uh, having faith in yourself. It wasn't entirely dissimilar to I'm Fine, Thanks. I mean, it was a lot less dark, but it dealt with the internalization of, of how sort of self-doubt and, and feelings of worthlessness can kind of overwhelm you and uh, whether or not you uh, you let that kind of destroy you. And quite sweet, had uh, Mackenzie Crook doing uh, the voice of the main guy. 
who uh, I wouldn't have thought to be a voice actor. I mean, I'm really not familiar with much of anything he's done outside of The Office, but uh, worked very well. Nicely put together in terms of the flashbacks and uh, flash forwards and things like that. And uh, yeah, I like that one. So congratulations to Ainsley. So the winner of Best of Southwest was kind of interesting. It was actually a, um, a Norwegian film. Uh, the director, Anders Furevik, uh, was, I think, studying in the Southwest at the time, so that's why it was eligible. Uh, it's called Klovesteinen. It's a sort of fairy tale, folk tale, um, very traditional animation, like really old school, which was why it was kind of surprising, because usually one of the components of, of, of you know, films winning awards is, is being sort of perhaps more progressive. This was sort of something that kind of put me in mind of like um, Derek Hayes a bit, an old sort of film he did called Sky Whales in the early 80s. Um, that sort of like, not quite Disney-ish, certainly very European looking, but very traditional, very full animation. Mm. Um, so it's nice to, you know, see one of those types win something. The new European Talent Award went to one of my favorite films, so I was really happy about that. It's a film called Kuhina, or Swarming. It was directed by a guy called... Uh, Joni Manisto, that's probably not how you pronounce it, but I don't know how umlauts work, so... And it's, uh, it's great. Have you seen this? No, no, I haven't. Okay, it's one to look out for. It's yeah. really creepy and cool and hallucinatory. Yeah. Not overly saturated, but very vibrant color work. Trippy premise, it starts off just a kid in the woods likes to torture insects or, or sort of smash them and rip them apart and stuff. And I guess it's a tale of the insects getting revenge, but it's not quite as cut and dry as that. It's more surreal. It's more kind of high concept and, and uh, really uses animation, uh, the benefits of animation being able to be capable of anything. Nice. To create this this very bizarre sort of sequence of events. It sounds uh, like a worthy winner. It's, it's great. It's really good. A little uh, reminiscent of The Nightmare Before Christmas toward the end. There's a quality to it that's very, um, from the outset, even though there's nothing surreal happening, it just feels surreal. It feels a little like uh, like a dream. And the, the longer it goes, the weirder it gets. It's, it's fantastic. I love that. Which leaves the Grand Prix winner. Now, um, this is one that uh, is pretty well established, I think, by now on the festival circuit, like by the time it got to Encounters. And Kieran mentioned this in the interview, it had already uh, got itself quite the reputation. Mm -hmm. Another film that improves watching it a second time, they showed it all the way through after it won the award. Uh, it's a real pity that the directors weren't there, because I would have loved to have, you know, gone up to them and be like, wow, you guys are nuts. I love you. <laughs> it's a and, film that looks good on screen as well. Yeah, it, it's sort of made for a big screen. Mm. Stop motion. It's called Oh Willie. It's by Emma de Swife and Mark James. It's about a middle-aged man, I guess, sort of balding, uh, corpulent fella who returns to his, uh, I believe, home compound where he was raised, uh, a naturist resort, because his mother is dying. And um, it starts off as a kind of simple enough idea of a going home to roost kind of thing. And, and then as it progresses, a bit like with the other film, it's not quite as, uh, as simple as that. There's more to it. There's a turning point. A sort of Lynchian turning point, I would say. It kind of reminded me of the uh, the way, like, you know, Mulholland Drive kind of completely inverts on itself. Where things go from being literal and logical from a story writing perspective to being more sort of symbolic and more kind of, uh, more interesting, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Just throughout, it just looks great. It's, it's just a really, everything's fuzzy. I'm sure you've seen it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks fuzzy and warm and inviting, but although the story, mm. uh, I wouldn't say that the main character has 
you know, such an inviting experience as he sort of goes through these trials and tribulations for finding ultimate acceptance yes. in, in the arms of something... Uh, in the arms of a character he encounters toward the end that I think would make a, a, a great plushie to market. <laughs> um, especially when you see what it can do. <laughs> Squeeze its belly in. It's going to be meaningless to people who haven't seen it, so find a way mm. to see it, because it's really good. I, I liked it a lot. I, do you think it's pronounced, oh, Willie? Or do you think it's pronounced like, oh, Willie? Oh, Willie. Oh, you and your monkey shines in the uh, woods. Oh, oh, Willie. <laughs> it was kind of, I mean, certainly they weren't going out on a limb, giving it the, the Grand Prix. I think it was almost sort of like pre determined, you know? Yeah. Some films are just kind of destined to pick up a lot of the big ones, you know? Um, and you can sort of see it coming a mile off. And it's a strange, intangible quality to them. All these extra components that need to sort of, you know, come into play and having very good cinematography, very good, you know, music and sound work. Uh, there was no dialogue in it. There wasn't a lot of, like, philosophizing in it either. There was stuff that I think an audience could have the option to take from it. Mm-hmm. Didn't force anyone to think a certain way or, or feel like, you know, they were watching something that was particularly deep. People could quite easily take it at face value of just something really, really weird and messed up happening mm-hmm. at the end. It was great. It was... Uh, 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 worthy winner. So good choice and one to look out for. No one was annoyed by by the winners, certainly. Yeah. So, so overall, a fun-filled half week of uh, animated uh, adventure. Ben, it certainly was. So until next year, that's encounters. So that was the Squiggly Podcast special on the Encounters Festival. Thank you very much to everyone who helped this come together. We'd like to thank Jude Lister and Kieran Argo from the festival for all their assistance. Also want to thank jury member and special guest Paul Bush for discussing his work with me. We'd like to thank David Sproxton. Goes without saying. We'd also like to thank Jane Davis and Paul Hill. From A Productions. So the festival's over for this year, but submissions will be open again early 2013. If anyone out there's feeling at all inspired to kick that animated masterpiece they've been keeping under their hat into gear. And you never know, you might be part of Animated Encounters 19th edition. So check out their website, encounters-festival.org.uk, for more info on this year's and future editions of the festival. And while you're online, have a look at Paul Bush's site, paulbushfilms.com, Paul Hill at mrpaulhill.co.uk again, Jane Davies at upstartthunder.co.uk. Their company websites are aproductions.co.uk and aforanimation.com, and, uh, uh, well, David Sproxton, obviously, uh, ardman.com. This podcast was produced and presented by myself, at Ben L. Mitchell on the Twitter, also ben-mitchell.co.uk, co-presented by Steve Henderson here at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson on Twitter, music by Wesley Allard, wesleyallard.com. Plugola time, any Brazilian listeners of the podcast may want to head over to Bela Rejoint, or Bela Horizonte, I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced, but I presume you know if you're in Brazil, for the Mumia Festival, which goes throughout October, it's mumiainternational.blogspot.com. My film, The Naughty List, will be playing Tuesday the 16th and Thursday the 25th, both at 7pm, as part of their International 4 screening. Well, bye for now. We'll be back very soon with a distinctly spooky episode and a rather exciting announcement, uh, but you'll have to wait till then to find out what it is. Ain't I a stinker? That's pretty much it, really. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>